0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Horror Vision Presents Elements of Horror. I'm Sean, and I'm joined today by the two hosts from Project Exploitation Podcast. That's Dan, Jeremy, Brooks, and Nick Cheney. Guys,
1: Hello. welcome! Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you.
0: So happy. So for listeners, you guys, I we, and we've we've been we've been talking before we roll for at least an hour, and um, so I've just met Nick for the first time. Dan, uh, we figured out, I, I haven't seen in 20 years, but you and your brother, Jeffrey, used to run a recording studio in Montgomery, Illinois called Apocalypse Cow, which uh, rip, um, you know, I, I mean, when I realized that, you know, I, you know, you move on or whatever, but just, man, that's, that was such a great oh, place. Thank you.
1: Well, you guys were definitely one of our favorite bands. I mean, I'm not just saying that. I, I think it's one of our best sounding records, all told, you know.
0: Oh, it yeah. I need I need to get Joe to get that stuff on actual like, you know, um, Spotify and Apple Music and stuff like that, where like people can totally. actually hear it because it's all. I I mean I'm still a physical media person. Uh, my credit card statement <laughs> can show you that because of the, the money I spend on fucking vinyl is ridiculous. Um, but oh, yeah. you know, it, now it's like if you if you want somebody to hear something you you know oh god yeah can i tell you guys we were just we were talking about physical media too i I don't want to segue too much but a couple years ago i don't know what movie i was talking about with a girl that i worked with who, who was younger but had like really good taste in movies i'm like oh i you got to see this movie i'll bring you the the dvd she's like i don't have anything that plays a dvd and that was the first moment where i was like I, oh
1: my man i've had a very similar experience a few times where like i'll tell somebody i be like yeah, man, this movie, you will love this film. And they're like, okay, well, what service is it on? I'm like, I don't know if it is. And they're like, oh, I probably won't see it then. Like they say sort of sadly, as if they have no agency and no ability, you know, or like, I'll i will be like, yeah, I'll lend you my copy. And somebody will be like, I haven't had a DVD player in years. I just watch everything on my computer. And I'm like, that is such a bummer to hear that. <laughs> so yeah, I can relate. its its It's
0: gonna bite everybody in the ass, mm-hmm. by the way, because now the shit's starting to disappear. And you know it's fine if if Hulu or HBO gets rid of a movie or something, but like there's not much on Netflix I like, but about three percent of stuff on there mm-hmm. I really like, and they don't put it out in yeah. physical media, so you got to subscribe. You know, so Nicholas Winding Ruffins Copenhagen Cowboy, like I wanted to rewatch it, and I I just I just got kicked off my buddy's Netflix, and I, I'm like I'll renew when Stranger Things five sure. comes out. <laughs> Until then. Fuck right. them
1: now, I I I've had to start doing that. Where um, well, I mean, like you know, there was a couple films. I think there was um, Marriage Story and The Irishman, uh, and was it the two popes? Might have been put out on on physical media, but like other than that, almost nothing. So like like for instance, there's this uh miniseries. I don't know if you've seen it. That was on Netflix about mm, four years ago, called Maniac, and um, it yeah, it's brilliant. No. It's uh uh Emma Stone you don't stone, yeah and i loved it i ended yeah. up tracking down one of those um copies they'll send to like the emmys you know like i found one on ebay so it's like for your consideration so but it's it's beautiful it's like it's the packaging looks like something you know you would get on amazon or, or on you know like a, a boutique label mm-hmm. like vinegar syndrome so but again that once in a while i'll be able to find one of those but otherwise man i'm I'm screwed if it ever goes away I'm just like mm, that's it mm.
2: Not to mention, I just want to say really quick, the classics that are on these services are often edited and or changed. And I mean, we just had a weird controversy right now because the Criterion channel of all places had a weird edition of the French Connection because they just premiered it and it was missing a few racial slurs for some reason. And there's disputing stories. Criterion is saying that like, they had no power over whatever, and that it was Freakin' who basically omitted it when he submitted it, and Freakin' saying hmm. like something that basically it had nothing to do with him. So I, and there's weird things like that, you know, uh, that is also even the things you have are not the things you remember.
0: Yeah, and and when you have these gatekeepers, right? Like a couple of years ago, I watched The Burning for the first time in a while, and I was like, I love this movie, and I realized, you know, who wrote The Burning? Harvey fucking Weinstein. I turned, I paused it, and ordered the Blu-ray immediately because I'm like, "Hey, he's a piece of shit." But in the climate of today, somebody might be like, "Harvey Weinstein wrote that." Right, Olad, right. It's right. gonna right? end
1: up like Leonard Part Six, where like you can't get it anywhere. Not that you really want to, but I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. <right>. <laughs> 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 <God>. <laughs> oh, oh my god! But god. yeah, I mean, dude, seriously,
0: it, it could. They could just disappear. Or that French Connection, man. I woke up. And picked up my phone and saw this thing it was a, a push notification on Twitter or something and it just was somebody said it's, apparently I. so is it is it that the French Connection is owned by MGM and MGM is owned by Disney it's owned maybe by something Fox, like that so yeah it is technically um, now
2: owned by Disney yeah. yeah
0: so what I had read said that they had just omitted that word and I immediately clicked over to eBay first I went to blu-ray.com because I'm like, I've been meaning to buy it forever, but there's conflicting opinions about which blu-ray transfer is better. Uh-huh. Sure. And I just finally was like, I'm just going to pick one. And I ordered it and the guy was on vacation. So all I noticed all the other ones were like 350 bucks. And I think he just, <laughs> didn't have <a> ch- <laughs> and this is like three weeks ago. I still don't have it. So I don't know. Supposedly he shipped it. There's no tracking, but I don't know if he was like, Oh, if I hadn't been on vacation, I would have been able to upcharge that, right? I don't know. But, and Huckleberry Finn. Exactly. Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten? I'm not condoning the word, but I mean, there. And I just watched the
2: French Connection for the first time, actually, like a couple weeks ago. And there was nothing about the use of the slur Mm. that in any way posited that the people saying it were in the right, too. So it's like, so now we can't even just show. You know, the horrific, let's just say casual racism within police prince
1: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean right. Popeye Doyle right. is supposed to be kind of a douchebag. I mean, he's
2: he's he is, he's, he's he's a is. shit I
1: mean, kind of he's not he's I not mean, a full on anti-hero, but he's he's supposed to be a relatively By accurate the end, representation like of is. the end, you know, <laughs> were... A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Oh, because he does the wave at the end? No. <laughs> I just, I just... No, because he shoots another uh, cop. Yeah oh yeah (laughs) wacky fun that happens all the time you know (laughs) actually i'll tell you you know we were just talking about cruising um before we started recording and the the um the the evil uh quality of those cops at the beginning is extraordinary to see that shown i mean like there's great films about corruption in 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 new york i mean obviously serpico you know prince of the city is, is a favorite of mine. But, like, those guys are, like, they're portrayed as totally unredeemable. You're like, wow, they're just awful human beings, you know? It's not like, oh, well, it's a hard job, and sometimes you have to cross the line. It's like, no, these are really bad guys. No matter what line of work they were in, they would be bad guys, you know? Yeah,
0: definitely. And they cast that perfect Mike Starr and Spinell. There's that point where Mike Starr is just staring straight ahead, and he's like, Forget what he's saying, something like they're all pieces of shit or something like that, meaning women, and it's really dark. Oh
1: yeah, like it's really. I, you fucking know, I had dark. forgotten that that was Mike Starr too, because um, he's he is uh, one of my favorite moments in one of my in probably my favorite movie, *Miller's Crossing*. There's a scene where he's basically supposed to go tune up uh the Gabriel Byrne character, Tommy, and um. Tommy's like, it, you know, this is set in the, I believe, the 20s. So Tommy's like, well, wait, give me a second to take off my coat. And, you know, Mike Starr, he's a gentleman. He's like, oh, yeah, OK, I'll give you a second before I start beating the crap out of you. And um, uh, Tommy suddenly picks up a chair and, you know, and just like swipes him across the the face just breaks his nose. And he's like, oh, Jesus, Tom. And then he just runs out like a kid. <laughs> it's hysterical. And, and, and like Gabriel Burns, like holding the chair, like. Uh is this done then? Are we done now? <laughs> you know. And that Mike Star line was omitted from the recent Criterion Collection Blu-ray. No. Like just the split Are second reaction of him
2: saying Jesus, Tom. Uh yeah, it's another uh, and I'll get off that horse. Uh but it's another weird decline and I still collect them to this day obviously. But uh in which Criterion is getting so weirdly uh entrenched in letting the directors basically have final cut which i get but in my opinion if you let them do that then there still should be the original version like like put both versions on them on the disc because we have that technology um but we're getting that i mean the the entire wong car y uh set that they put out is all color corrected to a complete you know unrecognizable version that he said he always intended but wasn't able to do back in the 90s which i don't understand i'm like you had color back then so so whatever but
1: (laughs) yeah that's a big controversy the whole wonker Y thing is 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 a big deal like because people i mean this is a pretty expensive set and it's a cool idea but yeah, yeah but, i remember reading people people are really up because well, it replaces are, the original
2: version then the other ones are out of print so now if you literally want a copy you're now watching the like 2022 versions and those movies were praised for their coloring you know those like tinted blues and whatnot and he's basically went through and like almost muted all of the movies for some reason so and it's it's weird
1: well, yeah, it's like the Coen, Coen brothers did that with uh, Blood Simple as well, um, where they kind of they sort of tightened some of the editing, which is okay, but again, why not offer both, you know? I yes,
0: know. I. that's what should be done.
1: Also, just admit you were
2: an amateur filmmaker at one point, and I say that as Blood Simple is practically a masterpiece, but I mean, like, you don't have to make those movies look as good or feel as good as the ones you're making now because A, they shouldn't, and B... I don't know, sometimes I get tired of, like, God, they're so good at what they do, and then at least I can go back and watch a more ramshackle version of what they
1: can do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, you know, Blood Simple is definitely, I would say, one of the great film debuts. uh, I mean, you know, which actually I think The Lure is, too, which is, I guess, what we're here to talk about today. But (laughs) it's true. Like, I mean, it's not quite Citizen Kane, but it's a hell of a debut. I mean, you know, I always think of, like, you know, Slacker, uh, Badlands, uh, Eight. Um Twelve Angry Men was Lumet's first feature film. I mean, he had done television, um, or like uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? Believe it or not, was Mike Nichols' first film and it's a freaking stone masterpiece. Uh or even like, I don't know, did you guys ever see the movie Targets? Uh the Peter Bogdanovich film. It, no, Criterion really It's I watched it like five or six years ago thinking it was gonna be because it's basically what it was is uh Bogdanovich had was wanting to do a film and Corman's like, okay, we're going to make you, we're going to allow you to do this film, but you have to use the 20 minutes of footage from this film that we started with Boris Karloff that never got finished. So he had to find some clever way to fold that into his story. So he basically, yeah. So like Bogdanovich is like, him and Karloff are the leads in the film. They basically play versions of themselves. And he's a young, you know, director and Karloff is this quote, washed up actor. And it, he he folds it brilliantly into this story about this guy who goes on a Charles Whitman style snipe, uh, like murder, you know, mayhem thing uh, over the course of a day. It's a great, great movie, and Criterion just put it out. So I'm like, oh, good, people will finally see this freaking movie because I had to like really search for it when I saw it, you know. I mean, unless in, in unless they remove the sniper rifle
0: from his from the new edition and put like an ice cream cone <laughs> in his hand, <laughs>
2: walkie walkie-talkie. talkies. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Oh. They actually put Bella Lugosi in this version. Boris Karloff. <laughs> right. In right. Right. Right.
0: Or, right. Or Martin Landau playing Bella Lugosi. We could do some layers here, right?
1: <laughs> Ooh, that's good. Yeah, Martin Landau. <laughs> you know, yeah. One of my favorite lines in any movie is. Uh, that scene where he's uh, talking to Edwood and he's like, "Oh, Eddie, I'm so tired," and Edwood's like, "Okay, well, we'll shoot around you for a while." And he's like, "And you see him tie up, and then immediately he's walking out. It's like, let's shoot this fucker." <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. I think about that line like every couple of days. Let's shoot this fucker. So anyway. Yeah.
0: So okay, we're we are going to talk about the lure and. I had told these guys I had actually. This is a Polish film from 20, 2015, right? Yeah. A um, debut. The director, I researched how to say her name. And then in front of these two guys, as I was showing off playing it on my little, <laughs> my phone recording app, deleted it. So uh, I'm not going to try. Um, Dan, what is the director <laughs> of the lure's name?
1: Uh, it's, uh, Agnieszka Shmochinska. That's,
0: that's wonderful.
1: Yeah. And yeah. And I mean, she's done several films since, which I've not seen yet. I don't know why, cause I'm just daft. I don't know why I haven't watched them yet, but this is an incredible debut. I mean, it's just bursting with ideas. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, geez,
0: I didn't know. I. Anthony from the horror vision had mentioned this to me years ago about possibly doing an episode on it. And I knew nothing other than it was like somewhat of a musical. So it's on, you know, in the back of my head, when we talked about doing this crossover episode, um, again, project exploitation listeners, you wanted like when, when we do deep dives on elements of horror, we don't even come close to dude, you guys, your episode on (laughs) dial code, santa or i there i mean i don't know Whatever There's so called. many names
1: for this. yeah <laughs> yeah there's a million <laughs> but i mean
0: it's it is the deepest of dives and i can't <laughs> i'm like i can't i can't believe a how fascinating this is and b that there's this much information even available I, at some point i'm like are they making this up <laughs> where <laughs> where do they get this information but then you look at you look, and I, 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 kid, but I didn't actually think that. But, but <laughs> you, you stuff. look at the the sometimes the length between your episodes, and like you, you both. I believe you both confirmed this for me while we were talking earlier. The amount of research you do, it's just commendable. I would say because Dan
2: does the research. I am like the person at the other end of the ping pong table, just hitting it back. <laughs> uh, but I don't want to. But he,
1: but. But Nick has a lot of things to say. I mean, that, oh, are, yes, that are very, you. very profound. He has a lot of very profound points. And I'm I'm always, I'm always amazed at how much he's <laughs> able to do when, when, like, literally will joke that I'll be like, so you just finished the movie five minutes ago, right? And he's like, yeah, about, you know, which is not exactly true. <laughs> Only if but, I'm
2: rewatching it. Like, not a first well, time. Oh, yeah, doing, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah. Well, yeah, 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 I've never, yeah. No, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're a professional. I get it. Uh, no, you're not like that. But but it is kind of funny, like how just off the top of Nick's head, he's able to do all that stuff. Because for me, I just have shitloads of notes. I mean, I've got them, you know, right here. And it's well, just...
2: you and I, and then we'll stop talking about this, but you and I are like the exact opposite people when it comes to that kind of thing. Because the moment I put notes in front of me, then I can't talk. Like I'm like, um, and so, like, if I can't do it off the cuff, then, you know, then I'm like, somehow I'm just without a paddle.
1: No, I I get it. Well, and and the other point of the show for me, I mean, we do it because we enjoy it because we love movies and and we enjoy chatting with each other. But the other thing is, like, I'm always trying to find a way to crack up Nick because Nick's very deadpan. And so, like, if I can if I can really catch him unawares and get him to crack up about something, then it's like job done. You know, that's that's my that's my plan. So keep trying. And it doesn't always happen. I know. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I'll get you. Sure. But and he always gets me because I, you know, every makes it hilarious. So anyway, uh, but thank you. Yes, we we love doing the show. Yeah, and thank you uh, for- I love your show. I love the elements of horror section of the horror vision. I mean, that to me is. Like I like the other episodes; they're a lot of fun, but but those are the ones where I'm like, "Ooh, they're gonna do this movie!" You know, rubbing my hands together, excited mm-hmm, about it. You know, that's yeah. cool.
2: Yeah, I will Thank say uh, one episode I have listened to, and then I very much enjoyed because you had I forget his name, but that professor I think you have. Yeah,
0: John Trapp. Yeah, he's awesome.
2: I listened to the one you did with uh, him. Uh, I think it was on Messiah of Evil because that's one of my all time favorite films, and that was fantastic.
0: So that's how I found John. Was I watched that movie? And I, I had like made a couple attempts, but th- there was a version on Prime or something. And I guess there were two versions and I didn't realize that. And the one that I kept trying to watch like three, four years ago was just garbage. Tra- I mean, garbage transfer. And so I'm like, I just thought that it was a crap movie or whatever. And then I would hear other people mention it on podcasts. I'm like, that movie again? So then... um I'm trying to remember if they... I think I feel like it popped up on Shudder. I was going to say, when had a
2: resurgence hit- when Shudder got a hold of some print like two or three years ago.
0: Yes. So I watched that and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I go online and there's nothing written about it. So I'm looking and I find John Trafton at johntrafton.com. He's got an essay about it. And I read the essay and immediately just found him on social media, like Twitter or something. I was like... I loved your essay. Would you come on my show and talk about this movie? And we just hit it off yeah. and he's he's fantastic. He is so good. That movie is just wow. And it's written by the people who wrote Howard the
1: Duck, another stone cold masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Which I had no idea until you told me that a couple of months ago. I remember we were at Pub56 you're like, you know the same guys who did that? I'm like what? So no I haven't seen Sight of Evil yet but it is in my, my Amazon extended shopping cart wish list thing. Uh, But I know what you mean. Like, um, I'm always trying to find academic or, or, uh, you know, at least books about stuff. And honestly, I I have to say, and this may be just a tribute to the fact that film fans are film fans, no matter who they are or where they are, but like the couple of times I've reached out to people who were, um, writers or professors, you know, um, I've always gotten responses, and they've always been like super generous with their their time and information. So I, I I love that you've had this guy on several times. I haven't listened to that episode, but I listened to well most recently. I guess I listened to the one uh, with the Joaquin Phoenix one uh, about. Oh yeah, but uh, I was afraid. Yeah, which I have not seen yet, but um, I I have a feeling I'm going to absolutely love it because you compared it to Mother, which I think is one of the greatest films of the last decade. So which I'm the only one who thinks that, but that's okay, I, you know? I, I I really like Mother. Uh, oh, That makes sense, actually. I could see you and me being on the same page there. Because Nick hates it, it,
0: but that's okay. It was, it, well, it's a movie, like, there's a part, There's there's, I don't want to say there's things about it I hate, or that there's a part of me that hates it, but there was a moment with that movie where I realized what was happening, and I was on a precipice between loving it and hating it. And I fell yeah. on the loving side, but it was a close, you know, like, I, it, I don't know, man, it, it's Aronofsky.
2: I'll say this, you know, because you outed me as a hater, uh, hate it or love it. Sorry. I want I want more movies like it, even if I yes. did not like, you know what I mean? Like, it's I'm always yeah, yeah. for it, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I remember you said said.
1: you're like, you're like, I think, yeah, you once said, you know, you're like, I'm on its side. I don't like it, but I'm on its side, which I thought was a good way to say it. Um, Yeah. I mean, to me, I think the other thing is, and and this sounds like this is true for is Afraid. uh, Mother, I think, is clearly a comedy. I mean, at least in part. I mean, there is a lot of very, I mean, it's dark, but I definitely found myself laughing a lot. And later on, I did find a couple of critics who were like, yeah, th- this is definitely a comedy. And, you know, they were in the minority. Most people thought it was just like this super like uh, stone faced, uh, you right. know, whatever. But but I I thought it was operating a couple levels at once. But anyway, not related. But anyway, so, yeah, the Bose Afraid episode, which I loved and I, I have not watched the movie yet. But I but I yeah, I love um what's what's his name again? The professor. Uh, oh, John Trafton yes yes he's great i always i always look for the episodes that he's on you know that's cool
0: yeah he's i mean and i love the fact that he's you were right after i met him we did that episode i started he's got a podcast called this movie saved my life um with uh the photographer miles fortune great podcast as well and they do there's a very scholarly pursuit or air sometimes and then they'll do these these, like, they've done two now. I need to listen to the most recent, but they do these, like, all nighters and they play each other movies and they react to it. And they led. So we do this, you know, deep dive on Messiah of Evil. And I've read this essay and he's very well spoken. And he leads that night on the podcast showing Miles Fortune, a uh, carnosaur. <laughs> <And I'm> like, <laughs> yes! I was like, oh, yes. Okay. Oh, but, man. You know, because all the colors of the rainbow, right? Like, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I just love that, and ah, oh, yeah, that's great. I, when you, when you see Bo Afraid, I want, I want, I definitely want to talk to you about it. Um, I, I, I missed b- in the both theater. You guys. It's, I, I sat in the theater. I laughed so fucking hard. I think there were two other people in there, and I could tell. <laughs> I, I, it's one of those movies where I could. There were certain scenes I was laughing at. I could tell. I could feel the eyes on the back of my head. You know, mm-hmm. They're like, uh, oh yeah.
2: I will say I saw it. And I did I did like it more than mother uh maybe that's just because it has a you know I don't I think it was more overtly comic I mean I do actually think yes. Mother is a dark comedy but Bo is like there is like actual like Pratt Falls and you know like yes. more yeah. whatever but um I will say this like I didn't love it, but for being three hours, I thought it went by quick, which is weird because it has some languid scenes where it goes on forever yep. um but when it was over, I was like I that's one of the biggest, like, for me, positive responses, just like emotionally speaking. I'm like, okay, if that three hours felt like 90 minutes, then no matter what, it did something right. Yeah, Mm.
0: well said. Absolutely well said. So, the lore. (laughs) This movie, I didn't realize this, there was a big hullabaloo about this movie, because Criterion, who normally, right, I mean, they're, it's Criterion, so they're doing these classics, right, But it's a criteria, it's a, it's came out as a criterion release.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I can speak to that a little bit. Um, So I saw this movie at the Sundance Film Festival where it premiered uh, in 2015. And uh, not to do the whole, like, let's bring this back to the day I was born. But before we went to the (laughs) festival itself, and I'm looking through the catalog, reading, you know, reading about all the films and whatnot. I told me and my friend Alex, who's uh, one of my best friends, we uh, we co-hosted a podcast called Film Tank, you can look up. We've done an episode on the lore, so I apologize if I repeat anything, but it's been like six no, years since, since we talked Wait, about sorry, that, I so about I don't that. even know what I said there. Um, <laughs> but we were going through the catalog and whatnot, and I told him uh, to go through and tell me everything he wants to see and I was going to go through, and, and we were going to try to whittle it down to, like, you know, Fifteen or so films that that was like the math i did when i went through the catalog the lure was the movie i wanted to see out of like i mean more than anything that i saw and there was like (laughs) a new witt stillman movie and i love witt stillman and i was like oh my god his first movie in like you know years or whatever but i read about this polish sex musical horror film about mermaids and i was like this is the movie to see you know maybe we'll see but and so what was so weird to me uh, now we'll flash forward uh, after the screening was um, me me and my friend Alex were giving, you know, back and forth kind of our opinions on and, and which was very positive for both of us. But he goes, I bet this is going to go to Criterion. And I, you know, I've been collecting Criterion since I was like 14 years old or something like that, you know, like it's been in my blood um, and I, you know alex i would say is slightly newer to like the boutique uh, boutique game and whatnot and i just remember thinking no that's not what they do you know like like I, he was going <laughs> he was coming from it like because it's a foreign language film and it was uh you know weird and whatnot which is a good enough reason but i'm just like i'm like trying to do insider baseball i'm like no they stick a little more traditionally to besides the classics uh that are a definitely not uh, horror like they, they they have such a minimal at that time in 2015 uh mm-hmm. horror output it has to be like rosemary's baby or something that's just so uh true and tried and i'm like and this is a contemporary film they're, they're they skew way more towards especially at that time <laughs> to the classics versus uh you know i mean yeah every once in a while there was like a Lena Dunham tiny furniture that was like some kind of weird studio package deal but just didn't happen so i right, like remember telling Wes him Anderson. Oh, well, yeah, with him, they pretty much gave it to him, which I think that's fair. Um, he yeah. pretty much is the Criterion Collection as a director, which is like perfectly packaged. <laughs> and nice. Um, but when when he said that, I was just like, no. And then like flash forward like six months later, I mean, it was a quick turnaround because it was direct to, you know, there was no other release prior to the Criterion. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden I see the announcement and I was like, OK, well, I guess I have egg on my face because that's. That's going straight to, you know, whatever. And I do think it's been from that point on, due to the, A, the reception of that movie in general, that Criterion finally did start to release a lot more horror uh, across the board. Not, Not, you know, like, crazy boon or whatever, but it has been ever since something like that, I think, when people were like, oh, like, the people really responded very well to this Polish mermaid killer body horror film. So I guess we can release like classic, uh, you know, like, uh, the uh, with the Kurosawa, you know, who does cure and whatnot. And...
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. They just put out cure. Uh, yeah. Kiyoshi Kurosawa's cure. Right.
2: Like, and those are like practically classics already and whatnot. So, um, so, yeah, I, I just remember weirdly having that debate before it became a reality and then utterly just completely losing my argument. But I was I was happy to lose because it, it gave us all a great addition of it. But uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, oh, I think yeah. I think it's a great, great film.
1: Well, I I mean, it's, it's funny because Nick and I often have this debate about musicals because Nick likes musicals and my I gal love Heidi musicals. loves musicals. so. Right. So that, yeah, I was going to say, I should say you you and Heidi both love musicals. And I'm kind of like, Meh, there's a couple I like, but for the most mm-hmm. part, you know, I'm not. And the, really and the ones you it. like
2: are always like anti-musicals. I'm like, you don't like, I mean, they're great movies, like all that jazz. And I wouldn't say all that jazz is anti-musical, but they're, the, you know, like you, you just don't like anything that's like an actual, like pure, you know, uncut, <laughs> pure crystal Fiddler musical. on the
1: fucking roof, Buckethead. <laughs> okay, you know on the fucking great. roof i love i love 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 that movie and i love to be fair that's just your
2: catholic guilt
1: well (laughs) my catholic guilt for the 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 uh jews and yeah the the fact that you're not jewish russian steps yeah yeah wow can you imagine that catholic and jewish guilt at once (laughs) that's like industrial strength weapons grade guilt right there (laughs) you know (laughs) whoa uh no uh but uh but you're right i mean typically the ones i I like like this one i think of as a great musical like i love this soundtrack i listen to this soundtrack all the time and it's funny because of course i don't speak a lick of polish so but i know all the song melody i mean I know all the songs so i'm just kind of sitting there like i'm gonna like bam bam meow 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 meow." you know know, it's like somewhere between like you know the ramones in a you know meow mix commercial yeah Yeah, but i can sing you all the songs yeah, yeah, so the Kingsman, exactly. Uh, and I, I mean, I do own the soundtrack. I mean, I, I can tell you my favorite song is um, t- uh, "Take Me in Your Care," which is the one where um, Silver's on the guitar doing the duet with um, Tech, You know, which, oh I mean, yeah, yeah, But I'm, yeah, but there's so many great songs on this, and it's such a diverse group of songs. Yet they're all in the dance genre, which is incredible. Yeah. So like you, you've got that that one. Um, I think it's called Abracadabra, where Golden and Silver are, um, they're, uh, like it's like it's weird, like Giorgio Moroder or like the band Suicide, or like I don't know, one of those no wave bands, like Teenage Jesus and the Jerks or Theoretical Girls, one of those. It's, and it's like, is
0: it the one with the black bars? Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's so brilliant. And, and, and it's brilliantly filmed too, because there's actually, there's a part in the bridge where, they're actually singing at normal speed, but everybody around them is in slow motion. It must have been incredibly difficult to choreograph, but it's beautiful. Uh, it's like this whole Bacchanalian frenzy. Uh, anyway, so, but yeah, but there's like all these genres, like the the one with the policewoman is like, it's kind of like a Korg Monopoly or an MS-2000, one of those synths, you know, kind of mm-hmm. sound or, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's just great. I just, I think it's amazing how many different, uh styles of dance music they hit on while still it all f- hangs together so nicely
0: it's, there's something about the look of this movie and and the way that the music is inextricably linked to it that reminds me of to a degree the way when i <clears throat> nicholas Wining reference bronson it's not yeah. exact but there's just it's like a euro it's that part where that euro disco cuz here we think of disco in a very finite right it's like cocaine uh <laughs> just you know gauche like uh right decorating and and just and it's just very like it went from here to here and then died or whatever <laughs> right and that's not what happened in europe and it eventually kind of morphed into these things like you know rave culture and whatnot blah 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 but i don't know it i i had no idea that that's what this was going to be and so right. that immediately blew me I just, I just love the look and the sound of the movie start to finish
2: yeah i would i would say for me that the direction of this movie is what i think makes it uh, a fantastic movie i i mean besides the fact that you know the i'll say this uh the music is my least favorite part of this movie and i like the music what? a lot. i know mm-hmm. this is where i'm like every musical you love <laughs> dan is like yeah. you like, always have to piss on it i mean no i love <laughs> this movie but i feel like the musical element is the weakest element you know of of everything else that's going on and i still like the musical element but i mm. when i listen to it it's i feel the same way about like um uh, with uh, Walter Hill's Streets of Fire, where I'm like, oh, yeah. this is a great, this <laughs> is a great both. concept, this is great casting. This opens up with a banger because I think the song yeah. in the supermarket, personally, uh, well, that and opening up with an actual uh great disco classic, you know, I feel love. Yeah, the Dawn of um, Summer. But you know, um, but opening up and then never quite, I think inserting the music as well like it it becomes slightly of an afterthought and not in the sense that it becomes something that's not paid attention to but with both movies i find the music is good on a vibe level but not on a like oh i am like like i haven't listened to the soundtrack outside of Mm. watching the movie i enjoy these songs in their context and i whatnot but for me when i'm watching it, for whatever reason i find the music to be like all bridge no chorus type thing you know oh, where okay. yeah, they, oh, wow. they kind of just like get off the ground and then never actually ascend to somewhere other than their one kind of mgn uh, i would say esque song in the supermarket and whatnot and i'm okay with that to a degree because there are some of them that i love like i love the one about um like and I don't want all the songs to sound the same, but um, I love the one you mentioned, the one where she's on the guitar with Mia Tech. And I also love the Autumn Leaves one that they do with that kind of balletic dance on the street side uh, between um, yes. Golden and the uh, the woman. I forget her name, but uh, you know, oh. Triton's lead singer or whatever yeah uh
1: oh god yeah i know who you're talking yeah. about yes that is right.
2: Um, and so i mean there are pockets here that i, I absolutely love you know whatnot but I, I feel like the music is the weakest part because of how enraptured i am by the look and feel uh, of everything and i mean this really does kind of remind me of like a like one of paul verhoeven's dutch movies that he was making prior to his studio ascension in, in, in hollywood where it is like ultra sleazy, but it has this weird uh, lived-in quality that feels like this actually happened because of the attention to detail to, you know, these locales and these like weird characters that are populating the backgrounds and the fringes. Um, I mean, even the fact that I think the um, the club that they play at, that's a real Warsaw club, I think, right? It's um, I looked it up. Ooh, it I, looked, I like, believe I read Ad- that. Yeah. yeah, the Adria. And I like... And because I know I had seen that, the only reason I even clued into that, because I am not a geographical expert at all, but I swear I've seen it in either a Zulawski film or something else. Where I'm like, wait a minute, so that must oh, be really? a real, yeah, where they're outside the same, similar, I should say, red neon light um, in that same kind of entrance. And that's when I, you know, Google, and I was like, oh, okay, so it's a real Warsaw club that was like apparently a huge thing in the 20s and 30s. And then, like, survived all the way to, like, 2005, but definitely by the 80s was, like, you know, more of a backroom club than, like, an actual, you know, destination, you know, whatever. So Mm -hmm. I love that, too, that it has this ultra-specific, like, these stories, despite them being, like, ultra-fantasy and whatnot, were happening in, you know, these pockets of real locales and, and history and whatnot.
0: Yeah, definitely. Very well said.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned the Department of Stars sequence, because I figured you, you must like that one a lot. It reminded me a lot of um something out of Evita. Hey, I like Evita. That's another musical I like a lot. No. Uh, I don't know. Is that an anti-musical, too? No, no. That's <laughs> you
2: know... Andrew Lloyd Webber, my good sir.
1: Well, I'm just saying, you know, but yeah, you know, I can't remember the name of the song, but it's the one where she's like, I came from the people. They need to adore me. So Christian Dior me, you know, which is a great rhyme yeah. uh, or, or even like something out of like help or long uh, Hard Day's Night, or, or there's actually, there's even like this Marx Brothers movie. It's a lesser known one called The Big Store, where they have this whole singing, like sing while you sell is the name of the song. And they're like, all the Murphy beds are popping up and down. It's super awesome. But it so it kind of reminded me of that. Um, and, and I also really liked, this is, you were talking about the the kind of uh, Verhoeven element. Um, I, there's a, the, the imagery in the sequence for the song, is called The Loop. And that's the one where uh, Magdalena uh, Chinetska, she's the stripper who runs away with the drummer at the end, you know, Mm -hmm. she comes in with like uh, IV drips and she's like slowly administering it to the three band members, right? Like an angel, you know, I freaking love all that. And uh, it it especially actually the first time I saw it, I thought she had a bagpipes in her hand. (laughs) So it it was even more funereal for me. I was like, oh, wow, this is really. And then I was like, oh, it's IV. Okay, cool. But yeah, I so I I know what you mean um about that. The uh well and, and I also love actually you guys mentioned I feel love. I love how that scream at the beginning goes, you know, transitions perfectly into ah, uh, you know, and then and yes. then like everybody in the club is like bopping around. It's it's like everybody feels it. They're all like people in the kitchen and everywhere, they're like you know, it's just such a cool beginning. Yeah.
2: Well, even the um, the that opening scene, I feel like it's kind of a funny little metaphor for the disco era in general because you have you have two people on the beach, in this case men who you know because of a siren song that the the mermaid, uh, mermaids are singing, are you know being entranced and you know making their way into the water. and then you have the female who's not affected by what's happening. so she gets to see it. Was the reality Evan screaming because yes. it's horrific? And I feel like that's disco in a nutshell. Like the people that were in it <laughs> were like, "This is the greatest thing in the world." And then
1: there were the people
2: outside of that burning building going, "What the fuck is happening?"
1: Yes, right.
0: Yeah. Oh, you I, loved it. I, loved shit. It. I love it. I love that. I love that. You know, and so that speaks to the idea that the director. So this was like partially, um, and also the um, the director and the writer. Roberto Ballesto is the writer. And so it was this movie was an attempt to kind of take the Hans Christian Andersen Little Mermaid idea. Um, and then the director wanted to incorporate it to use it to tell s- stories about what happened to her growing up with her mom running a nightclub. And she, she said there was like a quote where it was like, you know a lot of um, very transformative and important firsts happened to her there. And it sounds like it was probably pretty fucked up. And, And this, using the mermaid, she could kind of offset it so it didn't feel quite so personal, which is, that kind of creeped me out because there is an element to the movie. The first time I watched it, I was very in. And like, at some point, I think we paused it and my girlfriend Kirsten's like, I really like this movie aesthetically, but there's something about it that's really creeping me out. And I'm like, what? And she's like, well, the whole, there's that discussion when they bring the mermaid, when the owner of the club sees the mermaids for the first time and he sees them as girls first. And they show off the fact that they're smooth as Barbie dolls. And then they put a little water on her. Right. And, and, and they have their tails um, which amazing practical effect, by the way. And true. They find the the gill hole. And there's a whole thing where discussion about like what they're underage, but it's like, yeah, but it doesn't matter, they're not people. And right. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but she's like, that really derailed the way she felt about the movie. once she introduced that to me, and then I read the director say that, I was like, ooh, man. It's dark, but also then it's like, you remember, yes, but these are her experiences and we don't know that, you know, it's not, might not be one for one, but even if it is, or it suggests this, this is how she is exercising her demons, telling her story. And so in the end, it's not really exploitation, not, not exploitation is like a genre or, you know, like a, a me- methodology, but I don't know. Like, so it, it helped me process that a little bit more because that was something then I couldn't unsee that for that first viewing. I was like, oh man, that's really fucking me up with this movie. Cause I felt like it was all very fun and games is that's a terrible way to say it, but it was so beautiful and sonically. I, I loved it. And the story is, you know, it's, you see elements of a coming, you know, obviously it's like they're, they're inseparable, but then one is going to fall in love. And, you know, they introduced right. this idea that if she falls in love, she's putting herself in danger And, uh, I don't know, there's, I feel like all of that just kind of tells me, like, it's a modern fairy tale, 100%.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, There's, um, you know, it's funny, um, I was reading an interview with uh, Shmuchinska, and she said that her mother, yeah, ran these two clubs, and so she spent her, much of her youth there. And she says, there's a quote here. She says, there were spaces filled with erotica, vodka, and sadness. Uh, vodka was oh. used by everyone to numb themselves to the point where they uh, didn't care about the hard like life they lived under Russian rule. <laughs> you son of a... God damn it. No. Uh, but he's, basically, she says vodka was given to the, to the Polish people as like an anodyne to keep them from rising up. And um, so it's, it's it, she's basically saying it was a time where the life was cruel and so the people in turn were cruel. And I do feel like this movie kind of has that where it, it, yeah. it has that beautiful neon drenched eighties nightclub chic. But then because it's Cold War Poland, there's that kind of scuzzy undersmell, you yeah. know, that's like it's 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 a little more than negligible. You know, you can't quite deny it's there, you know, and, and in fact, I actually when I was watching the first time I watched this, I was trying to carbonate the, the time period uh. I was like okay and then finally I saw in in the extras uh said yeah we were thinking 83 84 so it's like mid 80s you know power station decadence you know despair cocaine <laughs> yep. you know, all that shit but just in in Poland of course so yeah I I, I agree uh, it's it, it, the, I do think this is a, in many ways a deeply feminist movie uh mm-hmm. not just because the director's a woman but because of well i I, i'll get into that more later i guess but yeah
2: yeah and another thing too i think uh is that the theme for me of detachment runs throughout this entire film uh when you see, like, when you were talking about the neon uh, drenchedness, you know whatnot. Like, it's it's funny though, because that's almost exclusively to the interiors of these places, but the exteriors, mm. it you know, is manifesting in a completely different, uh, both political and psychological mindset, you know. And and so these places become escapes and a way to basically detach from the reality outside and whatnot. Yeah. And then even Sean, what you brought up about the the introduction scene, uh, to the club owner to the two girls, you know. What's what I found very weird? Uh, I think this was my third or fourth viewing. Um, was after they they do drop the water on them to to have them uh, grow their uh, gills and whatnot. When you find that gill hole, like you know, it, it went from a moment of before I guess I should say prior to that moment when they were showing off the smoothest Barbie dolls. You know, like that's just one of the grossest things I've seen in any body horror film. Despite the fact that there's no gore, you know, like it's just mm-hmm, this right mm-hmm. it, marriage of uh, a horribly distasteful idea, and also just a great practical effect, and yes. and you go from this like a mindset of like that this is wrong, this is gross, and then when they drop the water on them and they grow the gill, now the gill hole is like. Quite literally detached from their body like it's it's a part of their body but now we've entered this fantasy realm in which that doesn't seem so bad like it's fucked up but i guess there's no morality here if they're no longer these you know uh quote-unquote underage smooth as barbie doll girls or whatever and i felt like the moment you do that kind of what you were saying about how it kind of makes this fairy tale or makes this coming-of-age story i should say more palatable i feel like that's a form of detachment too it's kind of like uh i'm guessing in a way the director is also trying to remove herself uh not just by making the mermaids but also trying to observe this first person experience from a third person viewpoint you know where you can actually dissect it and and look at it because yeah i mean you know it it's it is disgusting when the uh, the club owner takes his fingers and, you know, inserts them into the gills. But it would have been more disgusting had, yes. it, had that happened prior to that transformation. So um, it's a weird, weird way that body horror can actually tell stories that like no other genre can um, in, in these very hyper specific ways if you're on that wavelength.
1: That's so true. Uh, yeah. You know, it's funny what you said about the city, the the interiors versus the exteriors. You know, it's like it feels like um, e- e- the whole thing. I, I, in my notes I wrote something about like it was it was grimy in a picturesque way. It was almost like in Bill Ted's Excellent Venture, where he's like, "Hey, in the future, even the dirt is clean." You know, and it, you know what I mean. And it, like it almost felt like if somebody was doing like uh, Christoph Kislowski's Decalogue, but it was filmed by like Zack Snyder. <laughs> so it was like it was grimy, but it was a Beautiful, perfect kind of picturesque, grimy, supernatural thing, which I think is probably relates in some ways to her feelings of the bittersweet nostalgia. I mean, obviously, there's good nostalgia, but there's also bad that she feels, you know, and like some of the lyrics, which I should also mention uh, just to show another example of the care that these guys that the filmmakers took the English translations of the lyrics all rhyme too. And that's a mm-hmm. level of concern you don't normally see. So yeah. I just wanted to say that. I was going to uh, say, I've
2: always wow. seen that in something like the Jack's to me set where the translation are so good. in those musicals that, uh, that were like at first I'm like, Oh wow. It rhymes in English too. And then I'm like, Oh wait, no, they're they're, they're probably <laughs> taking not liberties, but you know, synonyms that will actually get the point across, but also we can, figure out the melody as we're reading it in Mm -hmm. english
1: right well and there's i mean there are lyrics where they kind of talk about how and again it does rhyme but they're they're grimy well like there's a line in um uh bright shiny neon is saying this is the best street to be on and then golden says hands made filthy by dirty deeds and then there's another one which is the called you are the beat of my heart where the singer uh i think is her name uh she says, after midnight in my town, the streetcars all get lost. The night is run by demons and the wires all get crossed. Infernal powers fiddle with the routes. It's all in limbo. So I, I, I do feel like, you know, the lyrics are are um, in concert, so to speak, with the imagery and, and with the storyline, you know. So, again, another reason why it works for me as a musical is because it does not only is it cool imagery, but it's also you know, it it it, it heightens the otherworldly aspect, and it and yes. it kind of um, you know uh, uh, reifies it too. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's tons of character character development and exposition just in that right there. Right, I mean, it's not stuff that you're kind of not already aware of because they do such a good job. I mean, the, the the character, you know, it's like very quickly I felt like I knew them, I liked them, even at their dark. Like, there's you know after they totally um throw them off the bridge and there's i forget the song but it's like it is done now or whatever like and it it, they just have that fight everything falls apart or whatever but i still just i i know they're fucked up people and maybe they have done some fucked up stuff but i'm like i really like their little family and i understand how it's like the whole world to them and i i that's just really they accomplished that very quickly like, there's other movies that have a lot of in depth exposition or dialogue, and you don't quite feel the same way at the end of the movie. And here it's like, you know, they do it very, very quickly, very well. So,
1: true. Uh, well, I love, you know, what I also love is the sound, the static effect that's going underneath during the fight, that bender, their slow motion bender fight, you know. There's this radio static going the whole time, which I never noticed until this most recent time I watched it. I was like, "God, that's so effective! That was brilliant," you know. Or uh, like, there's also, I honestly, like I said, this film just—I feel like it's bursting with a lot of interesting ideas, both character development-wise and plot-wise, but also visually. I mean, I—I uh, I was trying to find this quote. I'm pretty sure Francois Truffaut said it, but I—I I, I couldn't find it. But basically, it was his idea was. A new idea every minute of the film. So a minute goes by, you gotta have a new thing going, you know? And I feel like this movie's got that. Like, yeah. even stuff like, like the, it's uh, the housefly. What are the houseflies? It's part two, I think. And the band members are like, they're frozen in like this kind of like ocean blue light and like the drummers pouring like this never ending glass of vodka while uh golden is walking around and yes you know it, it's it's just such a brilliant visual conceit and it works perfectly i mean there's so many ways that could have gone wrong <laughs> or been like eh yeah i see what they're going for but it, it works so damn good um yeah it, yeah so anyway stuff like that you know or um the way they edit between the feathers during their fighting you know during the bender the feathers and then they cut to uh Gold and silver coming out of the lake or whatever, and they're um, there's snow falling. It's like it's just this perfect cut switch to that. I I just think that's just absolutely brilliant, you know, or uh, also I just got to ask you guys, because I I know you're a fan, Nick, uh, uh, but I, I felt like the opening, the whole diorama opening credits thing. Was that like a do you think that was like a like a Valerian Bo- Borov thing, like kind of an homage? Because I, I haven't seen any of his films, but I know you're a fan and I know he worked in that some that milieu a little, right?
2: I am. And I think it definitely could be. The only thing I know about it specifically was that I believe that was done by the director herself, I believe. And wow. I don't know if they predated the conception of the film or not. Like she had already kind of made these drawings or something, but it. At least that much I do know, and that this was like the germ of the idea of the movie with these macabre images that she had kind of drawn about the oh, wow. this repurposing of a very classic uh, family-friendly uh, fairy tale, you know. Um, but obviously, you know, being a Polish director, I can't, and being one that's so heavily uh, entrenched in. Something like this, like sex-filled body horror. I, I can't imagine that right. she hasn't seen any uh, Wallerian Boris <laughs> films. Uh, and so I would I would assume uh, it would probably be indebted. I the only thing I haven't seen well not the only but his my major blind spot with him is some of his animated stuff. I've seen his his live action stuff, but I have never seen because it's all collected on. A couple like either Arrow put it out or something like that, Uh, but a collection that I've never uh personally scooped up yet. But uh, but yeah. I,
1: oh, OK. So. I thought I thought you did have that. I'm sorry.
2: No, no, I've got some of his live action stuff. But yeah,
1: got it. But, uh, So he's a he was a Polish director. He was active in the 60s, 70s. Well, mostly 70s, I think. Right. Um, yeah. And, 60s uh, and
2: 70s he... majorly. Mm hmm. The problem with him being active in the sense that where you classify it is that eventually you just started making pornography and then the entire country right. was like, "Ah, oh, we're no longer interested, even though his pornography is still genuinely striking as art in a way that most pornography isn't, you know, but, right. you know, he was just as active, but certainly not as prolific.
1: Got <laughs> it. Yeah, I remember, um, I think even in the 70s, because he did have it was pornography in the sense that there was actual unsimulated sex and something, but mm-hmm. it was still artistic enough that it wasn't like, you know, it, it just happened to be that the characters were having sex in the right. movies. Right. It's, yeah. Was, right. Right. You know, like in the was, realm of it, the know.
2: senses or something, you know?
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Or one of those Jess Franco flicks or whatever, you know? Some yeah. Well, European some people would disagree stuff.
2: with you there, but not me.
1: Oh, well, it depends on the well, Yeah, Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. I don't want to get off on a tangent. No.
0: Sorry. Well, so it's like, don't look now. It's not like, you know, I'm here to fix the cobble, you know. Yeah,
2: yeah exactly. <laughs> somebody's got to fix it. You don't just want that.
1: Yeah, but you're right. I always think of Peter Stormare walk- in Big Lebowski walking, and he's like, oh, this is what I'm here for. I'm fixing things. Which is a terrible accent. I'm sorry, Peter Stormare. <laughs> but yeah, That's but it's, I mean, I just, I always think of that, you know? Um. <laughs> so yeah okay so i think now right about now is a good time for nick to tell his story about sundance and seeing this film because i think this is just the funniest coolest uh, yeah. story and I, I wish i would have been there for it
2: well okay i well first of all i just want to preface and say it's not that crazy uh, although it is in the, right in the, in the surreal way so yeah what dan is alluding to is that you know i'd said how much i wanted to see this movie obviously and we got tickets to it and Uh, We went and saw it, and uh, ironically, we saw... So, one thing that Sundance does is, uh, for space, obviously, is, like, they show movies all across the town. You know, like, they have a couple real theaters, and then you can one of the venues is the library has its own auditorium. You know, one of the venues is like, I don't know if it's their YMCA, but something like that has mm-hmm. uh, makeshift uh, stadium seating with a big screen and whatnot. And then one of the venues is this temple, uh, like an actual Jewish temple. Uh, and it was probably my favorite venue just by like, just, I mean, it was a gorgeous building and whatnot. Uh, and so the temple is where I saw the <laughs> um, lore. Cause that's where that screening was. And we get there, and I'm already jazzed about seeing it. I'm like, this is going to be great. And, you know, I think we probably saw it about halfway through our journey at Sundance. So we were pretty used to the fact that, you know, when you're there, like you're going to see stars and whatnot. And even if you don't see them out and about, almost every movie has a Q&A where all of a sudden, you know, you were just watching the movie and you didn't realize that like, oh, there's Natasha Lyonne who was sitting, I guess, four rows over there. Now she got mm-hmm. up and she's gonna go do the Q and A for the movie she was just in and whatnot. And, and um, nice. so like that of kinda... like hey so how's it going
1: everybody
2: <laughs> no I'm sorry yeah. that's a
1: terrible she's I, like I love
2: <laughs> Natasha Leone, I do she's like watch Poker Face it doesn't come out for eight years but uh, it's great <laughs> Um, but no she, so you know that like not in a bad way but like that kind of effect kind of wore off you know after a couple of days whereas I mean it's it's always great but it's no longer like whoa you know like yeah well, how are they doing this. So I'm in the temple (laughs) about to go see the and me and uh, my friend Alex, we sit down and we're waiting and, you know, everything takes forever because you're lining up like an hour or so before. And so as we're sitting down, finally, I'm just looking around and then all of a sudden it like hit me because um, I think I just read that catalog so much. A, because, you know, when you're sitting there doing nothing, it's just like it's something you were carrying around with you and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I had seen like the three or four stills that they had for the lore on the lore's page, probably a million times every time I ever just wanted to go back and reread the synopsis or something. So I at least vaguely knew what the two main girls looked like. Cause they were in each still and whatnot. And all of a sudden I'm like, like just kind of looking and I mean like quite literally the row in front of me and like the seats in front of me i see two girls who look very (laughs) young and then i see a woman sitting next to them and they're like you know chatting and they're giggling and whatnot and i'm like huh and then finally one of them finally does turn enough and i'm like oh okay yep those are the two girls and movie hasn't started yet i'm like those are the two girls for (laughs) sure and then i just you know contextual clues i'm like i'm guessing that's the director uh and whatnot i'm like that's that's interesting you know whatever and and I could hear they're they're only speaking Polish because I don't even think they did a and A like other Q and A that I did see even foreign films even like had a translator so, um, it, I don't think it was a question of like that they couldn't do them but like for whatever reason maybe scheduling or whatever so but the movie starts and obviously within like the first ten minutes you're already getting the balls as Barbie dolls and whatnot mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm just looking over and throughout the rest of the movie the entire experience for me was like trying to watch two movies at once once i'm (laughs) like trying to watch the movie itself and then because i'm a creep i also just keep looking slightly i mean i didn't have to turn my head but just looking in front of me to see what their reactions are to watching this movie you know in a room full of other people while half the time they're naked you know whatnot (laughs) and uh, to their credit like they were like just having a ball like they were laughing at everything they were giggling the whole time like i would seem like the director like something happened and then like she would be like like not obtrusively but like pointing at the screen to them and they would giggle more and it would be like the it'd be the kind of thing like if they were anybody else i'd be like shut the fuck up right <laughs> uh, right but right. like because it's them i'm like this is the greatest thing in the world and so it so yeah it's just that's definitely probably the most surreal movie experience I've ever had, especially because I was also loving the movie at the same time. Like, mm-hmm. if I was not into it, it would probably have been a lot more awkward and being like, oh, boy. Um, but, no, <laughs> it was a weird, weird thing. And then I think they didn't do a and a but I do think they stood up at the very end, you know, and just kind of waved and, and whatnot. But uh, I'll say this. They seem to love the movie as much as <laughs> any big fan of it. And there was no, like... Um, shall we say like this like stuffiness of like oh this this was a project I worked uh you know like this was it clearly <laughs> was fun for them to uh, i mm-hmm. think make it as it was for them to watch it 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 was very bizarre uh in in all the best Ooh. ways
0: that's awesome, I love the idea, and I don't think it makes you creep at all <laughs> not at, not at all, and i mean it, like i I get why you're i would have said it exactly the same right. way, but like, th- that is the idea that you're watching the two movies because it's almost like having a fucking commentary track yeah running, yeah right so you're seeing even if you don't understand what she, when she's pointing and they're giggling yeah you don't yeah, necessarily yeah. know what the inside story was but there's some you're, i don't know you're just getting a different angle that nobody else got and that's wow that's really and at the at the premiere, at Sundance on top of it, right? Like, yeah, oh my God. and I was
2: going to say, and I do believe that, you know, it was probably the second showing because it was the second week of the festival, but still, it's like the second time anybody in the entire U.S. had seen it, if not anywhere, because wow. I think it premiered in U.S. Um, and, you know, like, I feel like even if it's like Tarantino or somebody was sitting in front of me, like, that would not be as weird because I already have preconceptual notions of who he is and whatnot, whereas like here, like, oh, I'm just, you know, quote unquote, meeting you guys for the first time and i'm learning a lot about you on screen and also (laughs) you know like whatever like it's just because i had no you know no experience with them as filmmakers prior to this moment it was just like this weird surreal uh, i guess introduction to
1: three people who
2: i think made a movie that they're very proud of as they should be true that's awesome
1: man That's, that's i i just i can't get over that i know isn't
2: yeah, it was definitely my favorite, I think, viewing experience of uh, of the entire festival. I mean, you know, and, and I'm almost glad there was no Q&A. Like, I grew to loathe Q&As at the end of that festival. Like, people stand oh, really? up and say the dumbest shit imaginable. Yes!
0: Dude. Yeah. So, I've seen so many, because I go to Beyond Fest every year in LA, yeah. and also just seeing movies in LA a lot of times, there's just, you know, there is that happens, right? And always like the I think the last one last year uh Benson and Moorhead's uh Something in the Dirt and just oh yeah some of the some of the fucking questions I'm just like oh my god like are you kidding me um yeah the the worst I I don't I don't know if I, I I I the worst thing I've ever seen it wasn't a movie but I saw Nick Cave at the Egyptian Theater do a selection of songs with the piano, and then answer nice. questions. And wow. they were—you would think a Nick Cave audience, right, would at least be at least pre- pretentious or something, right? Just like right. a guy actually asked if, like, his girlfriend could take us come up and take a, take a selfie with him, and 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 <sighs> Cave oh like yeah. relented, and then he wouldn't do a selfie, the guy would take a picture of the two of them. But can you imagine upending a Q and A? Public thing to do yeah. that, but then he finished the night right after that with "People Ain't No Good." <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's pretty good.
0: Perfect, yeah. perfect. And I love that song. I just, I just hope that they got it. They might not have. Yeah, you yeah. Know. But, but it, yeah. I mean, Q and A's are rough. Man. They, they like, are. Just... I mean, like,
2: yeah. Every once in a while, someone asks like a real question about the process or something like that, and, and it's great. But ninety percent of them, I, I'll just list off like the three worst things that I remember. We, we saw a documentary about a really bad sex abuse cult. You know, it was like an awful experience. I mean, it was a great movie, but but it was made by the people who eventually did get out and whatnot. But you, it was all found footage that they had been taking for the last 20 years when they were in it and whatnot. Anyway, yeah. somebody literally just stood up and was like, why didn't you leave earlier? And it's like, what? Do you not understand anything about the psychology of cults? Like, A, it was covered in the movie, but B, like, sit down, shut up. <laughs> uh i saw <laughs> i horrible. can't remember what movie it was but it was definitely one of the biggest movies because the premiere was in um i think michael shannon was in it so that's why i drew a lot of people and so it was in their biggest venue which was like three thousand people and somebody stood up nothing to do with the movie but basically wanted to say how they just saw carol recently the todd haynes movie because they had just come out and they thought that, that 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 was better than the movie they had just saw like oh yep that what was a real fuck? thing um so anyway just some of the weirdest things I've, i'm like why are people like this it's so bizarre wasn't,
1: wasn't there one where at the end of re, of uh the birth of a nation of the uh, i don't mean the dw griffith yeah, but the, the, the newer one yeah where somebody stood up at the end and they're like so what oh, war was that person fight and i'm like yeah that i at least felt bad about war.
2: because of the fact that that was clearly a very dumb person who outed themselves as dumb you know like it wasn't for sure you know like i mean it was pretty bad because they were like yeah they they literally you know the last scenes of that movie is them like going on to the field of the civil war or something and somebody literally was like so at the very end so they were wearing blue coats and gray coats and so what what were they fighting (laughs) about i was like wait what you just watched the whole movie about slavery and you can't even make an educated
0: guess
1: but- Blue and the gray—they were. It was brother against brother. I'm just not sure which one. Yeah. <laughs> it was, oh, it was, the, it was the Clone Wars. Yeah, yeah of course. Yes. of course. Right. Cl- yeah. Okay. Oh, you didn't. Yeah, that was the Napoleonic Wars. You didn't know that they were at Waterloo. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Don't, I don't although know. i will say that oh. genuine stupidity is almost a brush of fresh air to my ears where i feel like in la all the bad questions there's some dumb ones there are some good questions i i shouldn't be completely you know poo-pooing q a's but Usually, it's people that ask questions that are obviously engineered to make them sound smart. Yes, and it drives me fucking crazy. I like the Carol
2: guy, where I'm like, "You're not asking a question," and I think he did at the very end. But like, all you wanted to do was stand in front of three thousand people and say why you really liked a movie that everyone else is saying they like, so you're not special. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, oh. I was gonna say, wasn't Carol like basically universally praised? I mean, yeah, I loved I mean, it, it too. Just, you know? But and also it also had nothing to do, we, we didn't watch an LGBT movie, like
2: there was no correction other than a uh, connection, other than the fact that it was timely because it had just come out in December and the festival was in January, so it it's very bizarre. Uh and I'm I'm with you, Sean, in that there are good questions. I was just like I was ready to sacrifice all the good questions yes. because I could not listen to all of the weird, dumb shit people wanted to talk yeah. about.
1: So did uh did Michael Shannon threaten to cunt punt that person? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: no, Michael. Did you guys Shannon... ever see that funnier
1: die where he uh he there was a funnier die where he was Re, uh, reciting this letter from a from a sorority, oh, from a sorority where yeah this, i've seen that video yeah where she's like <laughs> she's like basically dressing down all of the younger sorority for not like making conversation with the fraternity guys and at one point she's like i will personally cut pot <laughs> and it's, it's it's michael shannon it's honestly I mean, one of his best for intensity <laughs> it is and he totally he said the the only reason he did it because his girlfriend's like you got to do this and he's like okay fine I, I don't know anything about this but that will be fun. Oh my God. And it I mean Mr. Intensity that guy and it's so yeah. cool. oh so he anyways. was like yes, on another plane during his Q&A I mean the
2: director was mostly answering the question but he's just standing up there and every time uh, I think it was directed by Matt Ross every time he would be like um, hey you know like he would answer him and he'd be like well but actually Michael might know and then uh, Michael Shannon would be like yeah I don't remember that day like just just like i mean i all respect i think he's a great actor and also i think you know half that stuff is very weird and i don't blame anyone for just being like completely blitz and whatnot
0: yeah
1: oh yeah i I mean there's definitely i've seen q and a's like for instance uh there was a really interesting q a for um personal shopper that was on the criterion extras and, um, and in, in fact, I mean, it's actually one of the things that made me uh, love uh, Kristen Stewart even more because she I've seen this in her talk when she gives interviews on talk shows too. she sort of adopts this kind of like not flat persona, but I mean, she's not uh, unkind or mean or 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 terse, but she's just very like something about her. She it, clearly she doesn't want to do this part. Yeah. She's yeah. an artist. She doesn't care about this shit. And she just kind of you know she's friendly enough but it's four to
2: five years of her having to do it was attached to twilight where like i'm not like oh like those are the worst movies ever i mean some of them are not good but but for her to be an up-and-coming actress to get a role like that and then to have to answer the worst possible kinds of questions like what's your chemistry like with robert pattinson and they're both just trying to like make a living is it, it would turn me off for a lifetime even if I was like her and became one of the greatest actresses, you know, of this generation.
1: Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, and, the you know, Pattinson and her are just such phenomenal actors, which we know now, yeah. of course. Which, yeah. I mean, they weren't given much room to stretch. I mean, I had seen her in the movie Speak, which was excellent. But but I mean, again, then most people hadn't. But but yeah, I remember watching this personal shopper one and she was she was very nice. But I was but it was clear that um is it. uh Oh, geez, I'm like, oh, uh, Olivier Assias, uh, uh, Sias I should say, was answering most of the questions. And she was just there to kind of provide support. She obviously had affection for him. You know, they've done some movies together, but she was just but it was interesting watching. It was a very pro- weirdly profound experience to just see somebody who's kind of like, yep, this is part of the thing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I because she didn't say anything in particular or, you know, but it, it's just it, it, what you guys were saying it uh, that. That particular extra really brought it home for me for some reason.
2: Which is also, I'll say this to bring it back to the lore, <laughs> um, ooh, which ooh. I believe is maybe could have been the reason why they ducked out after the movie. You know, I mean, they, they they were appreciative and they were like, whatnot. But I will say, like, if I was them and I just showed that movie, I don't know yeah. that I want to hear the first questions off of everybody's minds because either A, I would be uncomfortable with it or B, I would think it was like just so boring that you should, like. How did you feel being naked on screen? Well, why do you think someone felt whether they're okay yeah, right. with it or not okay with it? You know, whatever. So I could no, also you're see probably right the 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 entire vibe of that movie being like, yeah, you know what? And they could have already done a Q and A in the first week, so they were not going to you know do it over and over and whatnot. Which I don't I don't blame them at all. So that that mm-hmm. could have been one of the reasons, at least. But
0: yeah, yeah. oh, I mean, that would be that would be interesting to face the audience after doing that, because it is, there's a lot of vulnerability in this movie. Okay. So really like brief synopsis, because, you know, when we do elements of horror, we do deep dives. I, I just always feel like you're, if you're going to listen to us talk about a movie, it's a full spoiler discussion. You've probably seen the movie. Now, Mm -hmm. in some cases I will say at the beginning, if you have not seen the movie, do not under any circumstances listen until you do. Right. However, I don't know that you can spoil this movie. Um, there's not like a twist and everything about it because it's kind of a fairy tale, it just it everything just happens very organically and it just makes sense. So Yeah. You know so you you've got early 80s, uh so there's the i'm i'm not even gonna go into the character names during this because it'll take too long for as i try to parse out because i'm i'm just pronunciation is is, polish is tricky so well
1: apparently the guy who plays drummer his name is literally just drummer in polish like that's so you could just say drummer and and drummer the sing because i think i mean the singer her name's like Kresia. And there's meat tech, of course, but I guess mm-hmm. the the word for drummer is just his name. <laughs> oh wow! I know that cracked me up.
0: But so they're a band at a nightclub that has illicit. So it, it seems like it's a nightclub, but also there's like a, another club that's wrapped within its walls that we in. I don't want to say anything goes, but a lot of stuff, you know, illicit uh, things happen, um, and they're on the shore just kind of drinking and fucking around and they these two sirens mermaids see them and and start singing and, and like dan said earlier that men fall swoon right and i love the i love the lyric too where it's like um well, it, it's. It, I thought I had written it down, but apparently not. It's something like, you know, just help us to sure uh, we won't eat you. We won't eat you. We won't eat you. It right. becomes a refrain and where it's like, bro, they're saying they're going to fucking eat you. Like, it's.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I actually, in my notes, I wrote down. Yeah. Pro tip. When somebody leads with we're not going to eat you, be very they're afraid.
0: <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Especially like yeah. where they just keep saying it, but they fall swoon. And then the woman, the singer. Realizes, like with your beautiful disco metaphor, um realizes what's happening, and then they end up bringing them into the nightclub and integrating them into their their band, but also their family. and because they obviously don't know any surface people. And I, I guess the mechanics of the mermaid in this movie, I don't know if this is the way it is in folklore or not, but where they're on land and they can have human legs they don't have human sex organs they have human legs but if they get wet then the tail comes back right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and they it's so weird to me too with this movie the way they incorporate that into the act in a way where i'm never i haven't been sure if the people in the audience that are just because they become a sensation right and it really bolsters the I mean, it seems like it bolsters the club and their their presence and the band's notoriety, whatever, but the people there's that song where they end up in the like the giant martini glass or whatever and their tails, so they engage their they get them wet so their tails come out. I'm not sure if the audience is aware that it's not an effect like I don't know did you guys have a read on it? I might have missed something i I would say my
2: read on it, and I do think it's done well enough. That is kind of ambiguous, but I've always got mm-hmm. the impression as to what you are just saying, which is that they don't know that it's real. Like they're just, you know, it's like, it's, it's like putting somebody in Vegas who can actually do the thing, but just pretending it's a magic act anyway. You know what I mean? So yes. I, I've always gotten the impression that it's just macabre, like, Oh, look at the freaks. And then people in the audience are like, well, this isn't real, but Hey, you know, pretty yeah. topless ladies, you know, whatever. <laughs>
1: I, I honestly, yeah, I wondered that, too. I was like, if if they do, then like the city of Warsaw is pretty like nonchalant about it. Like at one point, remember when the policewoman is talking to Golden and she's like, well, I you know, I know somebody went missing. So I'm like, OK, so the police are aware they're real. Is that the thing? I don't know. Strange. So that was the thing with the second viewing I did a couple days ago where I'm like, because I
0: had assumed that. It was just, you know, that it was assumed that it was an effect. But then there's there's little things, and that's the main one, where the, the police just, you know, and like they're, when you see it on the news, they're like, well, it's, you know, the victim's tracks and then some amphibious, whatever. So there's a lot of things that point to, is this a city that's just aware that they have this folklore wrapped inside of it, that people are just like, oh, no. You know, the way when you think of folklore and you think of like, let's say like, ireland or or you know like where oh you know people just used to believe in the fairies and they coexisted with them and and things right. like that so i'm not i'm not sure and it also like triton like it could just be he looks like a fucked up kind of metalhead criminal or it could be people are looking at him going like that guy's a like a monster of some kind because they then meet another right. sea creature who's had his horns removed, right? One by a fisherman and one he did himself. But he's got giant gaping, like not holes, but wounds that have not really healed. And he, I don't know, he just really comes across, even the way he speaks. And there's a moment where he says something, he growls or like barks. And it's not around anybody other than the two girls, but it just all seems like it's just part of the world that they're everyone's in.
2: Well, I think what he's doing is just like what they're doing in the sense that, you know, for, for women in the, in the world of like sex workers, you know, you got to have a gimmick if you're going to stand out, so to speak. And I would say, and I'm not well versed in it at all, but metal is a similar genre of music in yeah. which, you know, like there are. There are bands out there that have entire wholesale gimmicks to stand out, and I don't mean gimmick in the pejorative, but like this is their entire mo. You know, that you yeah, pay to right. go see them do this on stage, them to never break quote unquote character. You know, it's like uh, it's it's a whole form of like musical LARP.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. I'm just, I'm picturing black metal guys drinking at the the neighborhood bar, like in full black metal regalia, right? Like, oh, that's just you know Bjorn.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, it's true. I mean, there's definitely really successful bands like you know, Rammstein, uh, where they have a very specific fashion style. Uh, or I, I was just talking to my friend Rick last night, and he's like, "Did you know Glenn Danzig's real name is like Angelo Martino or something?" <laughs> I was yeah. like, "What?" I'm like, "Okay, well, that's interesting." So, I mean, I knew Glenn, Glenn Danzig was full of shit because I think he's, you know, kind of a tosser. But anyway, leaving that aside, uh, I did want to say one thing, which I didn't know until fairly recently. It was only when I watched the film again. This I think it's my third time, is that Warsaw's like the um, symbol of the city of Warsaw is a mermaid. So there's all oh. like when you go to Warsaw, apparently all over the place in relief sculptures and uh, city, you know, buildings and I think their flag. It's got the mermaids so i don't know if it's like well if they're gonna have mermaids it might as well be in this town you know i just so that might be part of the reason why everybody accepts it if they are accepting it not as smoke and mirrors but as real
0: so then they it becomes this kind of sensation although it's not like we're not going to like stadiums or whatever it just it just seems like it draws people in and people i mean there's there is a release you see and i think it goes into what we were talking about like what you guys were saying about you know the opulence inside versus as a escape from the world outside. That scene with that that song where they have the I forget what you said the name of it was. Dan, oh, the I, black... I think it's called Abra... I think it's called Abracadabra. There and also I don't I don't know what I'm basing this on. I because you remember like twenty years ago there was a brief period where a Russian band called tattoo t-a-t- u yes. whatever the song was that they had and it was everywhere for
1: like six months. Oh it was uh all the things she said all the things she said all the things she said blah 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 wasn't that the one? It might have but, but you know what's so funny? Uh, okay. I
0: had a I had a feeling whatever it was was literally like even if you played it i'd be like i don't even remember that that was it's, the it's, song it just yeah it's go, gone down you know, the memory hole <laughs> yes oh well also and, and may have just been may i mean i I don't want to make a snap judgment but it might have just been paper thin anyway and you know whatever but
1: it, i remember it not being i remember there they had like two hits and and they were both like pretty
0: kind of disposable, was, you know.
1: Very, yeah, very disposable. I mean, I again I have nothing against pop music. I mean yeah, same. I, I I always say the same thing. You know, Randy Newman he always said, you know, people who write pop music, they leave the same amount of blood on the floor as the rest of us. You don't think it because it sounds perfect or whatever or throwaway or sweet. But so I do I do have a lot of but that was not, I think, very good pop music. I yes. think that was very paint by numbers. And it was definitely traded on the idea that these two women were Are they lesbians? Are they sisters? Are they sister? You know, which to me is a little weird, gross in general. So anyway, yeah. Plus they're about 20 years too early for that kind of trend.
0: hey oh. That was a thing where back then that was so exotic that it was like, oh, now it's like, who fucking cares? But but because, you know, just the culture is, I guess, caught up. But anyway, but um, there's something about, and again, I don't know the last time I heard that song or saw a video. I don't even know if I've ever seen the video to that song, but- I feel like there was something about their performance that made me think of that. So I don't know if it informed it in some way. Um, Cause there is even a part where they kiss then, in the middle of yes. that song. And it's very performative. Right. But the release that I love that scene because you see these like old middle-aged men and they're just going for it on the dance floor. Like they're, they're, you know, you'd think that they were eat out of their fucking heads and just like surrender. I mean, it's such a great it's probably my favorite scene in the movie because the song kicks and then just seeing that is just like, oh my god.
1: Oh yeah, it's it's like this like you know, like Bacchanalian uh like uh orgy you know and, yeah. and it's it, it's just yeah i love it i think it's incredible it reminded me in a way of i don't know if you guys have seen this movie but there's this movie by uh, paolo sorrentino called the great beauty which i believe mm. the criterion collection has it well it, well he's he's a visual genius that guy i mean i love all of his movies even if i don't know what's going understand what's going on in his movies he's an italian filmmaker but, like, he's got several films about it, it, Italian politics where I'm like, I'm way lost. And mm-hmm. even then, I'm like, this is an incredible film. I love this movie. Anyway, but The Great Beauty opens with a bunch of people at this really, like, very fancy schmancy party. And they're all dancing by themselves. And it's all, like, their attempt to kind of look cool while they're doing da- It's all, I think, somewhat slow motion. And it kind of reminded me of that where you have all these like older people who are very wealthy but don't really cut loose much, you know? yeah yes,
0: yeah, absolutely that's the vibe. And it just feels like there's something so they've embraced whatever it is that the and maybe that has to do with the fact that the city is represented, you know, that well, like you were saying because that was lost to me. I had no idea. So maybe that there's something about that that's informing their acceptance and uh, you know, um it seems to be having a transformative experience, but then ultimately in the movie, the thing is the, um, the keytar slash bass player slash keyboard player and the one sister. So it's golden is.
2: Yeah. It's flipped. Golden is the brunette. Dark Yep. And silver. Um,
0: So it's silver and the, um, the one one member of the band uh you said his name earlier uh mia tech for thank yeah. you yeah which they, I, I think
1: we can all agree he's trash he's absolute trash i just want yeah. to say that right now oh yeah i mean yeah, he's definitely he's like like they're having sex for the first time it's like oh i'm getting blood on myself i'm like dude she yes! sacrificed everything for you asshole. you know yeah, he's and- like super he's like a super himbo like a bimbo flaky just Floating from pleasure to pleasure, yeah, just kind of now, taken for granted. It's he's, interesting like, he's a good looking guy. Say
2: that because I, well, first, I I also think he's an asshole, but um, mm. I do think the movie does posit some of not the blame, but like I do think this is a coming of age story in the sense that. Uh, silver learns that she should not change her body for men, (laughs) you know like no matter how Mm -hmm. wrong he is which he is and he's an asshole about it and i think and i do think that's kind of what golden is uh trying to also not just like oh don't leave me but also like yeah don't do that because like they don't actually want you they just want you for a night not for you know for your lifetime and
1: whatnot do not dull your shine do not dull your shine for anybody, as Naomi Campbell says.
2: And as somebody say, who has just it. seen the god-awful remake of The Little Mermaid, uh, you know, uh, the oh. Disney thing, whatever. Because um, I'm a fan of the the actual, you know, uh, the original and whatnot. I, and I think it's one of Disney's best. I, but it has some of the more problematic stuff that they've ever done, <laughs> just as far as uh, messages about, you know, mm-hmm. changing yourself and whatnot. Uh, but this movie takes that head on, and and it's like it has that exact same idea in the sense that you have the one sister who wants to do that very thing, and then the other sister who's like, that is like the worst possible thing you can do because it's a not going to last, and b, the only thing that is going to last is your consequences, not his. You know? Yeah. And 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 yeah. so I, right. I, I So I agree that he's an asshole, but I also think part of it is, uh, you know, kind of not on her, but that's the ultimate tragedy of it is that she learns that she was also wrong <laughs> um yes. in, in which I think gives it pathos like I find it as a to be good in the, in that kind of coming of age and way and, and learning from your mistakes although I do think it's interesting why do you you know I'm curious as to you guys why do you think she can't kill him at the very end you know like after all of that like do you think that's just a because she's a nice person or do you think it's because she learns that about herself you know like i don't know i can kind of see that going either way i uh,
1: well i have a theory in it and it kind of ties into the the feminism of the film and also so i i feel like one of the two big themes in the movie is about like the risks of empathizing with someone else you know what i mean um and and with that goes the risks of just being a woman because you're maybe slightly physically frailer or not as physically powerful and in the ways that um men not just men i mean women are you know co-conspirators in this uh exploit what we consider the monstrous oh, or, or you mm-hmm. know that kind of thing
2: and just to piggyback not to go off on a tangent because i'll forget it anyway mm-hmm. but when you're saying not just men uh there is a great scene in this where you see the um what's i don't i forget her name but the curly hair woman you know who's like mm-hmm. the quote unquote uh, creature yeah the mother Carisha. of the band you know whatever uh there's a great scene where even she fantasizes about a kind of bodily connection to the women yes. as being their literal mother you know whatever and that's a right, form she's of breastfeeding them, gross yeah. exploitation as far as not thinking them as of them as you know, people, individual, independent of her own desires and needs and whatnot. So anyway, I just, otherwise I was going to forget about that.
1: Oh no. And what beautiful imagery that is. It looks almost like a, like you're inside a snow globe or something. Yeah. It's so gorgeous and so unreal. I love that part, you know? Yeah. And they're like, they're like basically breastfeeding, aren't they? You know, at some Mm -hmm. point. Yeah. She's like nursing them in like this mirror (laughs) bald snow globe thing. Anyway, but yeah, I totally agree. Um, But I mean, I think what, you know, for one thing, I mean, one one thing you can say is like, okay, so here's the you know, the dichotomy of so one of i'm I'm half joking here, but you know, one of the ultimate dichotomies of Western culture is like one wants love, the other one's food. <laughs> you know so it's it, you know it, 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 and it's interesting too, because I think, and I don't know if you guys feel this way, I think the mermaids don't eat women. I think it's only men. And I think oh, when yeah. Carisha screams at the beginning, she's basically kind of saving their lives at one, mm-hmm. I mean, in several ways, because you'll notice later, there's that really Cronenberg Ian scene uh, with um, the police woman and, and uh, Golden, uh, which by the way, I, I should say that uh, Shmochinska did say crash Cronenberg's crash was a big influence on the visual style. So, but oh. she doesn't, which I was like, Oh yeah. All those yeah. You know, the greens and purples and the, you know, like I remember Cronenberg talking about how crash he wanted to create like A film where he was using colors that you would have from bruises you know like greens purple you know that kind of thing and i was like oh shit that makes perfect sense so anyway uh so i think it's interesting that they they have sex obviously but they don't obviously there's no eating you know she doesn't it's not like the praying mantis who you know bites the head off the male at the end or whatever but anyway i think this movie has a lot to do like i was saying with the idea of um Empathy and empathy being considered a feminine or faggy or whatever you want to say, emotion and the risks of it. Uh There's this really great article in Fangoria magazine, actually, uh, by somebody named Melissa Kay. And she wrote about this movie and uh under the skin, you know, the, the I Glaser saw flick.
2: a lot of similar. I haven't read that article, but that makes a lot of sense.
1: Well, she talks a lot about it. I mean, you know, that they're sort of otherworldly anti-heroines or maybe just heroines with no sex organs you know which is true in both cases i mean and it's funny because i found out uh in that article too that the polish translation isn't uh like uh smooth as barbie dolls he's actually saying empty as barbie dolls which is even creepier Ooh.
0: yeah that's <laughs> so pretty wow. creepy yeah
1: again i don't speak polish but i was like that's an interesting tidbit um but i think like i think Smocinska Sh- doesn't see these women as even though they are technically carnivorous predators she doesn't see them as being overly empowered in the film i mean they're and the men are not necessarily passive either um it's like they really show the men really show a lot of well unless you guys were saying that they're very much exploiting them like they're sex mm-hmm. toys almost you mm-hmm. know or freaks you know um and uh most cases something about let's see i have a quote here says both the mermaids and the female from uh, under the skin that she's only known as the female uh, risk annihilation through their vulnerability and mutual sacrifices to become like a woman, a human woman. Yet to become a human woman is to risk vulnerability. Typically, a man's worst risk on a date is rejection, whereas a woman's is, well, rape and murder. So she's referencing, I think, that Margaret Atwood quote, that you know, brilliant quote. The vulnerability of women in the act of seeking love or sex or companionship is to literally risk annihilation. Uh, these characters are monsters who become human, but they pay the price for their monstrousness is that they only get a taste of humanity before it's taken away. Uh, she says that basically the the female and in the in under the skin and the mermaids are like a reversal of the final girl trope in horror, uh, where it, it, their journeys transform them into the very thing they once regarded as food. The films become tragedies in the same way that women become victims. We're invited to empathize with the villains or the others which makes their downfall tragic. The women empathize too much with humans and imparted too much trust and thus lost their lives in tragedy. They gained a conscience and a longing to belong and the roles were reversed and the villain became the victim. And so when she's trying to get rid of her tail, I mean, this is the thing that separates her from other, thing that makes her special. You know, I mean, just leaving aside even the gendered element, it's like when people try to become uh, more... You know, she's trying to become a quote real girl, but the fact is, so many real men and women are super deadly, dull, boring people who are not interesting. While people who have quote flaws are the people we are drawn to. That you know, just in life, and mm-hmm. if it works too, and if she becomes too, if it works too well, the surgery works too well. She just becomes an interchangeable, boring human being. It's it's like um, I always think of Jennifer Grey um, from yes. Dirty Dancing, right? she had that nose job she had this she's beautiful very very semitic nose yeah. but it was beautiful on her she was beautiful and then she kind of had it i don't know anglo i don't know what you would call it yeah but it was like it was like it was so did, tragic it's like and it yeah. killed her career right um, basically yeah. i think so yeah because the I mean, one thing that
0: made her stand out i mean not to not to reduce her to just her you know her, her no. looks her nose but i'm just saying as far as in that especially in that era the competitive like I'm sure she looked at it and other people looked at it and told her it was holding her back. But really that's like, I mean, yeah, that that's a, that's a good, that's a really good pull. That, I liked. Oh, thank you. That article that, that was really interesting.
1: Oh, I will, I will send it to you if you want to link to it. Cause it is great. And it's available online. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's people like that, He's like Renee Zellweger a few years ago. I mean, I'm not like a huge fan of hers, but she had a very unusual and very cool, interesting look. And she was also a very good actor and it still is. But she had some plastic surgery a few years ago and it kind of eliminated some of the quote, I don't know, squintiness or whatever, that whatever people say. And mm-hmm. it was it was just like, you know, I was thinking about um, so uh, James Thurber was this writer. He would write these humorous short stories and he would also make like little illustrations to go with him for like the in the like the new yorker magazine and stuff so this is like Mm -hmm. 30s 40s you know you've probably seen something he's done or at least a drawing and they were very primitive but they were cute and the drawings were cool and the stories were really funny and his friend said to his friend eb white said to him one time like when he saw thurber was like trying to like uh shade and crosshatch and like create like volume and he's in so eb white said to him you know don't do that if you ever become good you'll be mediocre (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's true he it was his his primitiveness or or his his personal eccentricity that made it good you know yeah um and so like here's silver losing her voice her voice for a man i mean this sounds i mean that's straight out of the house chris (laughs) anderson story yeah It's like, can you think of a metaphor more perfect for feminism than woman loses her voice to gain man? It's like, isn't that what women have been doing for like 3000 fucking years? Yeah, (laughs) this is like dumbing themselves down, not talking. You know, I mean, it's it's just it's so perfect. It's so on the nose, you know. Um, And so I think in a way when Golden, uh, you know, obviously tears uh, the throat, uh, me text throw it out at the end. It's like she's responding to the cruelties of the, the humans, particularly the men. You know, they've they've been cruel to her and it's cost her her sister. And I think in the end, that's kind of what I meant about the empathy is that that uh, Silver is so empathetic. She can't do the thing she needs to do to survive at the end, you know. And I think so when when Golden uh, kills, it it's very much like. um it relates a bit to the idea of um, the, the basically being dehumanized, I guess is one way to say it, uh, which is basically what happens. They get to, they get there and, uh, you know, Melissa Kay again, she says uh, the conditional hospitality with which the mermaids are met in Warsaw is predicated on the accessibility of their bodies, their compliance to male demands and the ability to generate profits. So that's yeah. kind of my theory as t- to why she's just so uh, despairing at the end. It's like, like she can't even do the things she needs to do. She she has to literally kill or be killed, and she can't do it.
2: Yeah, I I I agree with that. One thing I I will say too is that you know in twenty fifteen a, a lot has happened since then, and um, we've had a lot more uh, trans narratives. And I am in no way a uh, authority figure to talk about anything's. Uh, I think that. we are.
1: I, I think as white male, hetero Christian, yes, middle class men, I Who think we better can we can talk about this. Yeah, um, but I no, Nick think... and I have this happen on the show a lot, where we're like, okay, I, I think we've solved racism today. Yeah. This is great, great. Yeah. Give ourselves a big round of applause, big pat on the back. We, we, did, we did it, guys. We yeah,
2: we solved it. Um, Why didn't you
1: just leave earlier? Yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah. it's like why, what? Did, why did you stay in the cult did you ever
2: think about leaving no that's not why we made this entire movie that captured that oh uh, my god um but no but uh so so what i find interesting is that it's, it's embedded into the narrative even if unintentionally because i believe that uh i mean any trans narrative, whether intentional or in this case, I think just incidental, unintentional, um, obviously gets back to bodily autonomy, which is something that exceeds even the scope of just uh, trans people. But obviously women have issues with that and whatnot. and um, So I don't think it's any surprise that you you accidentally stumble onto something like this, but hyper-specifically, it's embedded into this narrative that she can get legs no matter what. Like she, you know, when you're on land, you have legs. So she can basically, quote unquote, pass as human, you know, Mm. walking around and whatever. But she needs somebody else's legs specifically to get her sex organ to look Mm -hmm. like what the man in her life wants it to look like. And I find that is almost just, too hyper specific to ignore you know like even if it was True. unintentional it i mean you know i'm i'm very curious to see if this movie ever gets any kind of resurgence or i mean it's definitely gotten quite a bit but i i haven't seen a lot of writing on it nor am i the person to do that um but there is some unmistakable uh trans uh, adjacent if not uh bullseye <laughs> um yeah, you right. know stuff here because she then obviously after doing the procedure which and i think it is not a mistake that it is explicitly a procedure it's not a magical realism thing you know and and after it happens yeah it's not
1: like the lobster or whatever where they turn into an animal
2: or it's not even just um a some kind of reverse of what she does with water you know like that's magical realism but yet this has to be a procedure yes um and yet after it's all done you know she's rejected uh because it is still quote unquote to to the male's perspective that she's courting, uh not good enough. You know what I mean? The the scars mm-hmm. will always outweigh the actual presentation, so to speak, uh, yes. metaphorically speaking and literally. Um I, I just find that very fascinating that, you know, like twenty fifteen, I know when I sat there i because i'm ignorant and whatnot but like i did not think about that at all and then it's like it's 2023 and i'm watching it and i'm like oh my god like this is so loud i mean in a good way like like there's got to be uh i i hope at least some kind of uh kind of reclamation that you know i mean because unfortunately there's not enough trans representation in general so with that you know with that subculture not subculture but that uh group of people um there's been a lot of like talk about in the media like what a trans narrative is, which is sometimes not yes. always explicit, because they're so underrepresented. So you have to go to stories that are, shall we say, trading in similar vernacular and 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 similar uh, ideas and whatnot. And I think this is an I would say excellent. Uh, uh, representation of that obviously as a tragic one it's one that doesn't so we don't you know i would also like there to be great uh feel good trans representation right right. but this is unmistakably one of the uh the the experience of not just being a woman but also possibly being someone with a body that's different than what is the normal normalized conception of what sex appeal is and what gets to be coded as worthy of somebody else's body um mm-hmm. and, and i found that to be fascinating this time around yeah
0: yeah absolutely I, wow
1: great point well and it's such a hallmark of a great movie that you know um eight years later you can find these new things in there that were embedded so to speak and um and and again i think i i often think our art, great artists often they work you know intuitively or or instinctively so they don't necessarily always set out to write a story that's oh this will be a trans narrative or whatever but because of their sympathies and because of their compassion or generosity or oh, yeah. or, or creativity and all those it, it kind of gets in there and then as the time goes by, it resonates in a different way than it did, you know, like a year earlier. I was
2: going to say, for me, it, it's truth begets truth, which is if you're going all in on the thing you know, in this case for her, it was that kind of almost prepubescent coming of age in a sexually mm-hmm. treacherous place and time and whatnot. But if you go all in on, you know, the truth behind those emotions and, and those things, then you know, like, like what you're saying down the line, somebody will see a different truth in it. But, you know, truth begets truth. i've I've seen movies in which the the thing that I'm watching is in no way a life that I've lived. But when I was done with it, I was like, holy shit. That's me because I tied it to this totally. weird aspect of my life that I felt like had never been tapped into. And I never would have expected it from this movie because it's about somebody who is doing something completely different. But because it tapped into a truth, uh, it is so easy you know, to spread it on uh, to somebody else's life story because you can start projecting yeah. onto it.
0: I mean, well, and because truth is transcendent and also that makes perfect sense. And I was thinking the same thing where it's like you can see something where it, it has nothing to do with you or whatever, but you relate because... It's the great tragedy of racism and all isms is that we're all fucking human beings, right? So yep. there is no, like, there's this idea that people that are bigoted have that, like, this isn't, and, and, a, lot, and it, it, a lot of times, maybe, I don't know, not not so much anymore. I feel like hate is now in a state where they don't have to dehumanize, but it used to be where they would just dehumanize. Like, I can oh, remember... Yeah. No, like having met people when i was much younger like let's say in the 80s where you know it'd be like an, an like an older person that's at like uh I, I i'm trying to think of a specific example but what whatever because it wouldn't be family but like where it's like they make this person who is hispanic or black or whatever they you know the idea that they're not even human that they're sub well but like hitler hitler right like was considered Absolutely. everybody i mean he had such a narrow margin for what was human right and then <laughs> everybody else was some kind of mongrel and right it and i don't think hate even operates like i think just people are like well i just hate those people but it's just so Bizarre, because it's like at the end of the day. I mean, I I, I shouldn't turn this into a dissertation on hate,
1: but, but no, no. You know, I
0: think that's a big part of this film. I mean, it it just it's like you just th- those people just hate themselves. That's why they hate, uh, you know. And it's like it's so fucking obvious. It's it's literally standing outside the burning disco buildings, looking in, saying, "You should probably stop snorting coke because the building's on fire." <laughs> You know, it's the same thing. It's like you're looking in and you're like, how do you not get that? Like all these people who don't suffer from your affliction of hate and whatever can see you for who you are. Well, I mean, you know, the way they do that is they just it's all knuckles, right? It's like, oh, fuck you, you know. You, oh yeah, yeah. Whatever.
1: There's a lot of otherizing. Yeah, sure, yeah. certainly. Yes, um,
0: I love that otherizing.
1: Yes. Yeah, it, it's such a that's a term Heidi and I use a lot because we always try to check ourselves with it because it's it's easy to do that. I mean, and I'm talking about not just people of other races, but even just other oh, mindsets. Yeah. It's very easy to go, you know, it's very easy well, to go. Okay, now boomer. everybody does it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, yes,
0: and 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 like <laughs> I I have a friend that is always oh, for. For years it's like i knew what the media was telling me about millennials right but i worked with people who were millennials who were fucking amazing and i'm like yeah. i'm so happy that i i'm so happy you work for me
1: well no it's it's you're absolutely right i mean um I, uh, there was this thing i i um there was this uh when i was in catholic school in high school there was a A priest who had been teaching there for like, you know, I think 20 or 30 years. And he had this thing where he would drill it into our skulls, this one particular phrase. And to his credit, I still remember it. And it's still very profound and more profound now than ever is he would say, intimacy is redemptive. And this is something Heidi and I say all the time to each other. And basically the idea is if you know somebody who is, say, gay or something like that, it is so much harder to otherize. It is so much because you're like, well, wow, yep. yeah, my next door neighbor, man, those guys are so great. They let me their their lawnmower, or, you know, whatever. It can be something yeah, simple, yeah. or it could oh, be yeah. like, oh, my gosh, my son is gay or something like that. I
2: was going to say it's very stereotypical, but like I, you know, I, I have an aunt who had one opinion and then all of a sudden their son came out and I was like and I was like thank god because it turned her into a better person but I was like right. oh look at that it's weird how you have a different opinion now isn't it
1: oh i i literally had this conversation with Heidi last week we were in Lansing and um uh, mm, uh see it's a cousin of hers her opinion had changed in the last you know 12 years and we we're like well what happened and Heidi's mom's like, oh, well, you know, she knows a couple gay people now. And I'm like, oh, and I'm like, I'm glad. I mean, I think it's yeah, great yeah. that we can evolve. It's a shame, unfortunately, that sometimes it has to personally happen to you for in order for you to emphasize, empathize. It is, but, but, but so. I also
2: get mad at people. I'm just getting way off, but I'll just say this really quick, uh, who want to shame people for that being the reason. Because I'm like, no, because if it that's what it takes. I mean, that yeah. is what it takes. That's what it takes for almost all of us. I mean, yes, yeah, some of us mm-hmm. could sometimes be more progressive in the moment or whatever. But there are concepts right now, but I'm probably against that. If you ask me in 10 years, I'm probably before because I had more exposure to it just because everything's a sliding scale. So like that's just like human like nature. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so as as you're going to be
1: for that in a few years. So. I'm
2: already for it. I just want to. I'm
1: sorry. I was being a dick. I, was I like being... I was the being declarative dick. nature. I'm already for <laughs> yeah, it. No, yes. I don't want sorry there to be that. any confusion I, <laughs> on yeah, this
2: podcast. I, I know that
1: was ultra specific. Sorry, <laughs>
2: um, but no. But so even though I give my amp shit, uh, I'm also like, hey, whatever it takes. You know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: It, uh, actually, there is one other thing I want to talk about this week before we wrap it up, and it relates to that. It has to do with um a, a lot of um. A lot of people who have written about this film, I noticed there was an overarching idea about the mermaids as um, metaphorical for immigrants. Um, and some of this is my own theory. So I'll, I'll I'll try to predicate, you know, I'll try to tell you at the beginning, OK, well, this is this is just my theory. But basically, um, I I think and again, this might be instinctual, it may not be totally obvious although uh uh, did say she definitely was thinking about immigrants in poland when she was making the film but there's been a lot of xenophobia in poland uh like in the last uh 20 or so years like so uh, we don't really know much i mean you may have heard of it in passing but in 2010 like poland sort of had its own 9-11 moment uh which was something called the uh, smolensk crash uh, where the, uh, the the president uh, Kaczynski and some like 90 other dignitaries like uh, the former president Kaczynski, I think his name, um, all the high ranking military brass, a bunch of members of parliament, a bunch of government officials, people who are like prominent clergy were in a plane and it crashed in Russia. And it was this catastrophic loss of life, like over 100 some people died, I believe. And they were. The irony was, they were on their way to the 70th anniversary, commemorating the the Cotton Massacre in Russia, which was. I won't go into that, but it was something that actually it took Russia decades to even admit to. It was something that happened mm-hmm. during World War II, where the the Red Army. I don't remember why during World War II decided to execute, like, you know, I don't remember if it was hundreds or it was, it was quite a few. Polish officers out in this, this for the Katyn forest. So, anyway, so it was this kind of reconciliation moment where the, the, the Polish, all these Polish dignitaries, including, like I said, the president, a pr- former president, all these guys were on their way. And the crash happened. It was this terrible tragedy. I mean, uh, it, it was, it would be like if, you know, a, a third of the cabinet suddenly died, uh, the US right. cabinet or something like that, including the president. And at the time, there was an investigation, of course, and it concluded that it was it was an accident. It had to do with fog and lack of visibility when they were trying to land. But Polish right-wing nationalists, of which there are quite a few now, started kind of ginning up the people about, like, conspiracy theories, especially anti-Semitic conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. It was very similar to, like, Pizzagate or, like, the QAnon shit. This is, like, 2010, mind you. So, like, by wow. the time, like, the lure was in production. Um, The Law and Justice Party had won a really commanding election in Poland. And they began like openly destroying um, anything that um, opposed them. Uh, They took over the the state TV, uh, censored newspapers, uh, anything critical of them. And they ran on a really obvious anti-immigrant policy. I mean, like, I'm, I'm not, they would, if I said to them, well, you guys are anti-immigrant. They'd be like, yep, absolutely. We hate yeah, immigrants. Right, right. So, I mean, it, it's not like I'm being hyperbolic. But, I mean, very anti-EU, very anti-LGBTQ, and then kind of covertly anti-Semitic. They just all hate
2: all sh- the acronyms.
1: <laughs> Basically, yeah. Well, wait, does Jew stand for something? I don't know. Well, no, but you said EU, and
2: then you said LGBT. That was at least oh, two. Oh, right, right, right. And we all know that that, that, is means, true. that constitutes true. a pattern.
1: That is a pattern. It's true. It's 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 one is a coincidence, two is a pattern. It's true, as they say. Anyway, um, so, uh, yeah. So then uh, the one of the newspapers, uh, Gazeta Polska and the state TV started pushing all these conspiracy theories that have kind of taken hold. And it's all about it all kind of started with the Smolensk crash. And it's funny. And again, this is just my own personal theories here. Mm -hmm. But there's I feel like there's references to it in the lure, like uh, during the um, what's called the banana song. I'm not sure why it's called that, which is basically uh, uh, Magdalena Chinetska's like stripper song, you know, Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, that there's like some weird lyrics about like there's a noise up in the sky. I slowly raise my eyes. I see a jet full of business people packed to capacity. And then the very next number. Is you were the beat of my heart, which is one of the best songs I think, and it's the mermaids are dressed as flight attendants and the singer is dressed as a pilot or a captain. It's weird, man. It would be like the analogy I would draw is that like if you watched a movie that came out this year that was set in seventies U.S. and like you're in a nightclub and you watch and they're showing like rear projections of like the twin towers or people riding on elevators, it would be it would instantly we would have this this like collage of associations we'd have in our minds as Americans we would be like, Oh, interesting. Like, yeah. even though it was set beforehand. So the reason I mentioned this is like I said, uh, uh, Shmochinska talks a lot about the idea of the, the immigrant and the, uh, there was this interesting article I read by, uh, let's see if I can get her name right. Agnieszka Kodvas- Oof, Wow. I don't know if I got wow. that. Anyway, but she zeroes in on the whole immigration thing and how the idea of like what we consider monstrous over the years in literature. Like she starts with, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I mean, I'm sure you know Sean about H.P. Lovecraft's horrendous racism and anti-Semitism, and you know, which super informed his his beautiful stories. But but it was all love
2: in his name.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He can't be racist. You know, it's funny. I never thought about that. Hmm, interesting. No. But yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, Karwas Jenska talks about the basically the subtle ways that the Polish state media would which she calls gothic eyes or monstrous eyes or I guess otherwise is another way to say it uh the the people that they were referring to as immigrants they wouldn't even call them refugees so it's like immigrants it makes it sound like oh they're making a personal choice to come here as opposed to refugees where which is what they were like like the syrian they're fleeing from horror you know and and, yeah right right and so she's like you know so uh kafasianska says that not only is the discourse on immigrants gothicized through the notion of alterity you know or, or other racism, if you will and monstrosity but the reverse is also true the profusion of such negative metaphors in daily language now influences the way fictional monsters in horror cinema are perceived in other words the horror imagery cuts both ways and and she even talks about how sirens and mermaids and even like proto vampires um started to kind of merge in the medieval era uh like the the they they um like, for instance, the way that the um the mermaids at the beginning of this, they have to be invited on shore. It's very vampiric, right? Oh, the idea of, oh, yes, I, be. I remember. Th- yeah, right. that's right. So int- And apparently that was something that kind of started to get conflated and, and merged in the medieval era to the point where, like, several European languages actually use the word uh, sirena for both mermaids and sirens interchangeably, which is really interesting. Uh, which I actually think kind of makes sense, too, because the sound design and the lure is so brilliant when it comes to the way uh, Golden and Silver are exchanging conversation, you know, uh, yes. where it's like there's their like psychic community. It's so good. It's it's like feedback and like humpback whales. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's, I was going to say it mean? sounds like por- por- porpoises or humpback whales or something. A, a, yeah. Or dolphins or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And then like also there's like this little metallic. It almost sounds like there's this great composer, Chaz Smith, who who writes who creates his own enormous stringed instruments that like bowed instruments that are metallic. And then he plays them. And so there's several of his CDs are out there really good. But so he creates the instruments then he plays them. It sounds like that mixed with, you know, porpoises or 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 feedback. And so anyway, I, I thought that that was really fascinating. The idea of the the immigrant or the other. I, I think it totally ties into what you guys were saying before. About what we were all talking about with otherizing.
0: Oh man! Wow, that's and the idea that she's incorporating that whole future. I mean, right? If you're in 1983 timeframe right. of the movie, and like this, like it's it almost. Wow, that that uh, that takes a bit to unpack because it's it's almost like yeah, a microcosm a of the macrocosm in general, and it's like pointing to. I'm showing you what is going to happen, because, it's what happened. I don't that that I didn't say that exactly right, but. Well, oh man, even I mean I mentioned
2: it earlier, but even studying it in that, uh, real club, you know, uh, yeah, real right. life context shows that that we. I say we, but the general Polish audience would probably know that the same way that like American audience knows like Studio 54, you know, like, you know, if you don't know much about it, you know, when it was a thing and then when it wasn't. (laughs) And so the general Polish audience would know that, like, you know, just by choosing this locale and not just any other club that like there's an expiration date attached to this entire culture and to this story and whatnot. So, yeah, I, I, I think throughout the entire movie she's playing with that idea of like you know this is a period piece that is directly in conversation with the the long slow death of its future
1: oh yeah right no that's very true um and and that's part of the reason why i think is all these layers make me think like i said before i think this is one of the great film debuts i mean to me it's like a total shot across the bow like you know like i don't know godard's breathless or you know some of the others i mentioned earlier where it's like Wow! How did somebody pack all this? And now, granted, she has really good collaborators. She's she was smart about the the writer. In fact, the um, I believe the two people who so she she grew up in a club, and then she has two friends who also did who wrote all the music for the film. Oh, okay. uh, and they actually yeah, they actually appear at the very end during the the wedding stuff. Are they the two that are playing that final song?
2: Yeah, so she's actually, yeah I think that's it's actually one them. of the one of the biggest bangers of the movie. So and I think it's the one that's actually in the trailer, too. I believe that that oh, song really? is what scores most, at least most of the promotional material, just because it has that really good kind of uh, chorus.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's basically like it. It's like the song that appears, I think, three times in the film. And so this is like the Housefly part three. But yeah, it's it's the it's the most banger version of it. And like, I love how everybody in the movie is singing it. Like they cut to each one of them individually. Even Triton at one point, I think he's like making burgers or something and he's singing along. It's just like, I love that, that kind of yeah. like Magnolia-like, you know, yes. uh, montage of everybody singing the same song.
0: This is a debut film. And also I love this where like the first time I watched it, it was a very surface watch. I was aware of some, you know, metaphor and whatnot. But then the second time I watched it a couple days ago and reading about it, there was like all these other things. And then now I'm just like, there's so much more that I'm like, oh holy shit. There like, you know, it's the thread on the sweater that you start pulling and <laughs> yes. Wow. And it's and it's a first movie. I know. It's incredible.
2: Yeah, and I I know she had made some short films, like, I think, cause, and that was the thing, too, is, like, there was a big gap between, from what I understand, like, her short films when she was really learning, because that was, like, in the, like, mid-aughts. So that's, like, a decade between when oh, wow. she had kind of experimented with the medium and then this movie, and I feel like, you know, whether it was intentional or unintentional, but taking her time, like, it shows and pays off as to she was she made the movie the moment she was ready to make a movie because it's yeah it arrives fully formed
1: it does like i said her collaborators are great i mean the writer the uh the 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 music you know these are people she's known a long time i mean it's a it's a pretty incredible film
0: so it looks like uh i think dan you mentioned earlier her other films and i Mm. oh she is a holy shit okay she has a, there's a movie, I have, I've started it multiple times, and the, it's not the movie, the viewing every single time something happens. Knock on the door, what, whatever it is. The Field totally Guide good. to Evil. Um, and it's an anthology. It's, it's floated across every platform at some point, so I have no excuse other than it keeps getting interrupted. But she apparently did one for that. Oh, wow, that's awesome. That's 2018. And then 2018, she's got Fugue know nothing about weirdly enough two episodes of warrior nun on netflix which i don't know what that is i just the title immediately makes me think i wouldn't like it but i i don't know i you know i don't know what is it called warrior nun i feel like i know something about it but i don't know what i know about it i so i don't know and then the silent twins was last year and i feel like somebody somewhere on a podcast has talked about this and i just i don't know anything about it but it doesn't look like it's oh prime video 399 i was
2: gonna say that silent twins is something i have not watched yet but i heard about it sometime last year when it came out due to somebody watching it and then speaking about it but i just remember when i read the review or whatever i read like i was like oh my god i had not realized that like she did the lore in 2015 and then i hadn't really seen any real follow up you know and whatnot but um, uh, from, from what I heard, at least the Silent Twins got decent reviews. I know it's based on a true story. So it's a slightly even though it's, I I think it has her trademark of surrealism and magical realism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the actual like characters or something like that is like based on an actual event or something. But, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I when I was researching this movie, I was surprised to learn that. I thought she had one movie that had come out since, but I didn't know she had two films and a short film, like you said, in that anthology. So, yeah, I've been super delinquent on watching her other stuff.
0: I feel like I want to watch The Lore again right now just to kind of revel in, like, these new ideas that I hadn't <laughs> known were before me the whole time. Um, which, I mean, I, that's another reason why I do this, right? Like,
2: Oh, yeah. That's why I Yeah.
0: When you talk about movies, it's like, you just get these other perspectives and they open. I love when they open like that. I'm like, oh, man, wow. Or like, you know, the the feeling of like, I on some level, I knew that, but not on a conscious level, and I love that feeling too. Yep. Um, And, I mean, thank you both for, because I feel like you both just really did that for me with this flick.
1: Oh, Um, I'm glad. Well, I mean, you you definitely did that for Cruising for me, you know, which I listen to. I gotta listen
2: to that, because Cruising is genuinely one of my like, all-time favorite films, and I don't hear enough people talking about it. It's so
0: good. It's. Mm-hmm. I knew I was going to like it because Friedkin, and also I had read. I'm. I'm a big Knife and Heart fan. Oh yeah. I had read how this movie or how Cruising informed that movie, and so I. I'm like, I know I'm going to like it, but I didn't know. I didn't know, it was going to do what it did
1: and leave me like, like obsessed to yeah. a degree. You know. <laughs> I um, love those kind of movies though. Love them. You know, it's so funny, too, because um, Cruisin' and, and I don't know if you guys I don't think you guys talked about this much, but like Cruisin' like obviously well, you guys talked about how like everyone hated it when it came out. The critics savaged it and the studio. I mean, it actually more than made back its money. I don't know why they were bitching. I but didn't realize that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it I mean, it was it was a modest success, I would say. But it was like but the funny thing is that movie and um heaven's gate you know the chimino flick yeah are often credited and i think unfairly probably i mean maybe to an extent heaven's gate sure but not cruising they're credited with the end of the like new hollywood yeah uh, auteur era and now then it became like oh just you know uh i don't know Jaw sequels and shit yeah <laughs> or whatever it
0: became, it became star wars
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you get a lot of these, you know, Police Academy films or Animal House ripoffs or whatever it is. But it, it's funny because it's like I, I remember when I when I watched Cruising Again, like I said, a few years ago, I was like, man, this is a really unfairly maligned movie. Not only is it quite good, but I don't even see why people thought, oh, well, that's that was the doom of the new Hollywood era or whatever. I don't know. I just the it's only
2: personal. thing I can think of as to what you're saying, but I don't know would be just that both of those movies heaven's gate and cruising are during production were huge liabilities because i mean cruising True. you know they had to dub half of the vocals yeah. because literally the protests outside okay. were so loud that they couldn't actually record uh, diegetic audio so you know there is something to be said about like the auteur behind the camera saying we gotta make this movie even if it is clearly not wanting to get made you know whatever So that's the only thing i can think of maybe as to like what connects the two and obviously heaven's gate is the most famous of that as far as just troubled productions but
0: (laughs) well okay we're never doing that again so star wars there you go it makes money because action figures right everything you know i mean not the not to pick on Star Wars. I mean, but. George Lucas... Ooh. No, I no, mean, no, no, no.
2: No, but think about it, though. George Lucas is the perfect studio person because he writes these things and he's like, I don't have to direct them. You know, like, yeah, just, you know. So it's like this perfect detachment of yeah. the world and the idea that they want, but also they can put whoever they want. And there are some great directors that worked on them, but it that detachment that uh, kind of severs that
0: altruism. Yes, yeah. Oh, true. Ex- exactly like I, I, I can almost see a boardroom at that time after Heaven's Gate six months later and above the door where the executives meet, it says, sever the auteur. You know, that's like, that's that's the new byline in this show. Sever the auteur. Wait, sir, am I going to remove his penis? No,
1: maybe. <laughs> you know, it, it's funny too, because like Friedkin, while being very much an auteur and, and certainly a guy who had his own vision and, you know, probably rubbed some people the wrong way, I mean, he was I mean, so, okay. I love the deer hunter and I like Heaven's Gate a lot more than I thought I was going to. But Chimino was kind of an egomaniac nut. I mean, like even even if I like his stuff, I'm like. I could see why they were like, we we should have never done that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, because because he kept saying he's like, well, it's going to be this much. And then it was like, oh, it's doubled now and it's going to take three times as long. Oh, now we've doubled it again. And it's like, okay, dude. you you should have just come clean at the beginning or or rather you shouldn't have let like every little in like idea. I mean, it's great if you're Jess Franco where you can start like five movies in one year. I was going to say when nobody's actually paying
2: attention and you can make it for less than $5,000 yeah, sure, do whatever you want to do. But I, and I agree, but like something like heaven's gate, not just money, but that's a lot of people. You know what I mean? Like those are people who are out of commission because they are working on this thing at the whim. Of, and I believe in altruism. Like, I genuinely think most of the time, most of the time, that, you know, like these directors, whatever, they should have kind of that final cut, full authority, whatever. I sometimes disagree with their choices, but whatever. But something like that, it's like, no, there there is something to be said about, wow, I'm always on the director's side versus the studio. The one thing that the studios at least probably deserve is like a timetable, you know, like just a <laughs> a, a promise, so to speak, upfront to try and do things in in the way that you say you're going to do them. I mean, that's just yes. that that's just how you, how anybody operates in any job, so it should not be that different and now if like an accident happened you know like an actor dies reshoots whatever like those sure. are extenuating circumstances that are baked into the system anyway but the idea of like i'm gonna make this movie here's what it's gonna look like and then like however many months later by the way this thing i said i was gonna do it's not that at all it's actually this yeah. and it's like well wait a minute <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it's well, it's yeah. hubris
0: right yeah. it's just I, you just have to be able to cut the hubris with rational thought and um you know, consideration for other parties involved and it just all and not just like, no, goddammit, it, it's going to be this. Yeah. It's going to be the you know, it's like basically Bridezilla, right? It's yeah. the same like yeah, you want true. everybody in your in your family to fly to a the lip of a volcano in some, <laughs> you know, like and and stay on a space station for your wedding? Yeah, because well, yeah, it's my wedding. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, uh, don't be disappointed if right. that doesn't happen. Well, I mean, look right, at Wes right.
2: Anderson. One of the most particular people ever, and yet everybody loves working on his movie, and studios continue to greenlight them for pretty much carte blanche, because he can actually do it you know he he gets yeah. it done and whatnot there's got to be a middle ground somewhere between you know like a michael cimino and like late stage clint eastwood who basically does one take and then says okay we're good and then even the actors yeah. are like oh yeah can we do like one more take no nope, it was fine it's like okay it's like nah brah
1: nah brah we're
2: good <laughs> like nah, i gotta get it. home and watch wheel of fortune I'm, i can't do this all day <laughs>
1: Well, the thing about Chimino, too, is that I remember reading an interview with him and he talked about like, and he was dead serious about this. I'm, I mean, he said he's like, at one point we were waiting for the clouds to lift for this, you know, because it was during the Johnson County War stuff, which is actually very really well done. But I mean, it took so long to freaking do. And he's like, we were waiting for the cloud to lift. And I put up my hand and I, I moved it. And then the cloud moved. And he's like, and. And I was like, OK, dude, Ooh, and He's like, you can ask wow. crew members, they'll tell you. And I'm like, oh. OK, which is funny because I remember seeing an interview with Bob Raffleson r- talking about making five easy pieces. And he's like, dude, we were so full of shit. We were so full of ourselves back then. He's like, at the beginning, we're doing we're shooting the first scene of five easy pieces. It's in some room in a house or whatever. And he's like, and there was a fly in there. And the fly kept buzzing around and everybody in the crew is trying to get it. And he's like, and just out of, you know, sheer chance, I happened to reach my hand up and grab the fly at that moment. And he's like, and then he said, like, he said, and then I said like really pontificatedly, he's like, now let us begin to make five easy pieces. (laughs) (laughs) And, but I mean, the difference between Chimino and Raffleson is that Raffleson was like, yeah, that was bullshit. There was a lot of, there was a lot of cult, you know, nonsense here, but Chimino, I think really did believe it. and, and, you know, anyway, so I don't know if this is really related to anything. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> no,
0: it's that's
1: it's I, I don't know. As Star
0: Wars sequels were coming out, was he just like standing on a mountain somewhere going, You can have your moment, George Lucas. I'm moving
1: fucking clouds. You I know, like, honestly you wonder. You I wonder. I mean, he was never the same. I mean, like, I've seen his films afterwards, some of them are okay, but it's like, I don't know. I honestly I think he probably had. Some sort of mental issue, it might have been schizophrenia or something like that. And I mean,
0: or just like ultimate hoover. Like, I really just wonder if it's like it's just gotten, I don't know, I feel like that could have actually happened. Where I guess it would become mental illness at that point, but I mean, it's true, predicated on just this ridiculous like empowerment of yourself, where it's like I can do no wrong, (laughs)
1: right. Well, yeah, I, I remember Chris Christopherson talking. To, oh, I think it was Chris. It was one of the guys. It might have been Walken. Uh, one of the guys talking about how like he's like, yeah, we've been sitting here for like three days because he's been, you know, shooting this one like fifteen second scene for. I mean, it's it, you know, like the whole story about Kubrick uh, directing. Uh, oh gosh, was it The Shining? I can't remember yeah. what it was. But With... was it? It was Kaitel, Ke- right? Was it Kaitel? Uh, where um, he. Oh, oh well, th- there was stuff in The Shining where, yeah, he well, got Scatman Brothers to cry, yeah. which was horrible. But um, I can't remember what movie it was. It was around that same time, but he was doing this film with Keitel, and it was the first day of shooting, and he had Harvey Keitel walk through a door like a hundred sometimes, and Keitel's like, "You know what? Fuck you, dude," <laughs> and he left. And unfortunately, and it was the first day, so they were able to recast. I don't remember which movie it was, oh, yeah. but it was like, you know, oh, but it's yeah. one of those things where. Yeah, no on the other hand you have somebody like Venture who does a million takes, but people seem to like him. He seems to be not a dick to people. So you never they know They seem
2: to like him, although it's always retrospective because they say like the day of like they were furious, you know? Like yeah, yeah, the bar yeah. scene right. in the social network. Do you need a hundred takes of that? I don't think so. <laughs> and like Rooney Mara's been on the record saying, like that day I genuinely wanted to quit acting. You know, like just this was like the worst experience ever. Wow. And then like because the movie's over like i'm glad he did it it's a great movie i yeah. don't know that it it's necessary but whatever i'm no longer stuck in that moment <laughs>
0: yeah
1: well and then she started in the girl in the dragon tattoo so i mean obviously she yeah. was able to work with him again so yeah you know yeah well, that's a good point i don't know it's yeah It, it uh, I, yeah uh,
0: guys final thoughts mm.
2: i'll i'll start off and just say that i mean i think the movie is fantastic uh, as dan has pointed out it's just a shockingly good debut it's it's so weird that this is a this is somebody's first feature film because it's one of the most indelible movies ever made like there's before you watch the lore and then there's after you watch the lore like no matter how much you like <laughs> it it is imprinted into your brain as an experience and something you will never forget Um, but on top of that, I think it's fantastic. And it really does remind me of some of the stuff that like I had mentioned earlier, like Paul Verhoeven doing in with his Dutch uh, sex movies and, and, um, and just really captures a time and place, um, in a way that maybe because it is foreign language feels weirdly authentic in a way that like, when I see like an American period piece, maybe because it's American, I start poking holes in it or something like that because I'm more familiar with whatever. So here I have, I don't know, I have this detachment from it where I just feel like it's it's such a uh, great period piece, a great reworking of uh, kind of the fairy tale at the center of it, um, and yeah, and even if I was like slightly harsh on the music, like it's just it's a soundtrack that i very much appreciate and in media res when i'm watching the movie i think it's pretty much perfect as a scene by scene thing um but the melodies themselves like like every time dan you said a song and you had to say like oh it's a song where and you had to describe the scene <laughs> not the song i think that's for a True. reason which is that it doesn't well i
1: didn't always do that well okay there were times i just referenced the lyrics so you can go right right to hell Uh well i'll see
2: you there (laughs) and um i just think you know like it's it's not that it's like the weakest point so therefore it's a bad thing it's just more of like everything else about this movie astounds me that like for me If the music was slightly better, in my opinion, this would be like an actual masterpiece. As it stands, I think it's still amazing. I think it's fantastic, and I'm so glad it got made. I'm so glad I got to see pretty much one of the two premieres with the people (laughs) who made it directly in front of me. Like That will always be, and I can't always tell if that's elevating what I think of it or not, but uh, Mm -hmm. whether it is or it isn't, uh, I think it's fantastic. So
1: Nice. Um, oh, well, I, I guess I'll just, I, you know, it's like I said, I just feel like this is a film that's bursting with ideas. And, you know, it's like I said, of that Truffaut quote about a new idea every minute. I feel like this movie kind of has it. And, and and it's a lot of little things that I didn't catch the first time around. Because like you said, Sean, you know, you're kind of letting the thing kind of wash over you and on surface level. But like the second or third times, it would be like, uh, I don't know, there's like just weird stuff. Like there's a moment where the elevator operator uh, at the club, I think, is yeah he's doing that hand drive it's like this ornate little hand drive also he looks a lot like dennis hopper when he was in the movie rebel without a cause so there's that too so i mean not related but uh or like the weird like superstitious pre-show ritual where the the owner has to like like give them a little stick in the knee or so he's like you know what i mean it's like all these little lived in details that are like oh god that feels like somebody actually experienced this in real life or um, like the moment where uh, Golden first like uh puts the whammy on her first victim, you know, like, like glamours them, I guess you'd say in Vampire Lore. Yes, the guy at the bar. That, right. And there's this little like almost like sonar ping sound effect, like ping, <laughs> where she like nails him. And and, and the focus sort of like the, it racks, the, the focus racks out in, you know, it's just like, Phew, you know, uh, stuff like that, you know. Uh, oh, and also, and this is something I didn't notice until recently, and I never really I knew it was surreal. I just didn't know why. The scene where they're watching the television um, is before the drummer does his whole like, uh, like karaoke. Chronos, like in the beginning, yeah, you know all that. Before that, they're watching the news, and the camera is zooming in on the television, right? Mm-hmm. And in, on the television, the television is zooming in the picture at the same exact speed. And it has this very unreal quality, which I always felt, but I didn't know why. And I think that might be why. So it's it's all those little details like that. Um, Oh, and there's this moment where the, I don't know what you might call the night manager of the club. You know, she's like, you know, she's, you know, this older lady. And she's like basically tricking Silver into smoking. And she's like. You know, she's like, you know, it'll make you lose your voice. And it's like, what the fuck is wrong? But as she's talking, I noticed they started pitching her voice lower and lower. So yeah. like, by the end, it's like, it's spooky.
2: I still it's, don't know why spooky. they did that. and I'm not against it, but it's one of the most like deliberately off-putting choices in a movie full of a lot of off-putting things uh, in, yes. in, in a good way.
1: Depending. Yeah. No, it's great. Uh, You know, there's all sorts of stuff like that. I just love those details. And I think, um, again, I I do actually think it's a masterpiece. And and I actually do. As I said before, I do love music, actually. I mean, uh, I do listen to the soundtrack a lot. And it's great, too, because it's in another language. So I'm not distracted by the lyrics as I'm working on other stuff. So if I'm writing or whatever, I can listen to it. And Anyway, so, yeah, I absolutely love it. I mean, for me, this is a I think it's a five star movie. I think that's what I what i put on letterboxd most recently
0: i would just say that i love the so the examples of very small details that you just pointed out the movie feels to me and i feel like i'm still kind of in an infancy like with knowing it right sure but like a studio album i love studio albums because you can do all the stuff that people might not ever even know it's there totally but the people that do when they when you you know you clue in on it you're like oh my god they did that and like what percent of people would notice that I where it's these like hidden I don't want to use the word Easter egg or the term Easter egg, but because it's not what it is cause it's not like a callback or whatever, but it's just these little flourishes that are done simply because it's you know, like you would for for decades, rock producers or lives like s m fifty sevens went on a snare at a certain angle because you've heard it so many fucking times. Yep. you don't know most people don't know that that immediately will work to endear them towards a song. But engineers know it, right? So it's that kind of thing where it's almost subliminal. And I think there's so much things and that the voice pitch, it's so funny you said that because I had been thinking about that and totally forgot to write it down because that that is just one of the strangest things in the movie. And it's like, I don't know what it's there for other than, I I don't know. I just really, really, that might be my favorite thing in the movie. (laughs) It is really great. It's just so, and then that's just indicative of what I liked about the experience of watching and now getting to know this movie is like, is that, and it is so lived in and it, it is, I don't know, Poland in 1983 or Warsaw in 1983 and it's the same way. I don't know New York in 1983, but you know, like I, I once said to a friend of mine who's older and lived in New York in the 70s and was around, you know, we'd go to CBGBs and blah, all, and we'd be talking about stuff. And he's like, I feel like you get it, and I'm like, I get it because of the Stones records that were recorded there, television, um, yep. you know, yeah, Scorsese, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, like there's just some mm-hmm. things that's for whatever reason, I. I'm not saying I get it all, but I feel like I got, I really kind of understand it in a way because of that, and so yeah, I don't know. Also, there was, this is kind of fun, like kind of a joke, and it's kind of not a joke. There, When I was a bartender on the south side of Chicago in the aughts, uh, one time I went with, I usually didn't work the weekends, and there was a Lithuanian guy that worked the weekend. He was younger than me, but we went to this bar. It was a bunch of us. And he's like, we're going to go to this bar. It wasn't that bar, but there was an L like, I remember at some point I felt like I was in Poland. It was a Polish. bar. He was with the way it was a Polish bar, but there, right. Everybody there was, was, was like, that's people were speaking Polish. And there was a weird, very weird nightclub Euro vibe to the point. I remember when I walked outside at like five in the morning, completely shit hammered. And it, it, it was like in the, in the graying, you know, first emergence of, of daylight, the area, there were like these ruined buildings. And I, I felt, I was like, am I in like wart torn Europe, East, like, it was just the weirdest, and so I think there's something about this movie that also, like, is, like, pinging that, and I, whatever, I don't know, but yeah, it's, it's a fantastic movie, it's, I know it's available on disc from Criterion, it is, it has been since, I think since I've had HBO Max, or whatever the fuck it's called now, I think it's been on there, I, it seems like it lives on, on HBO Max, or Max, or um so it's very available um and i would just encourage people to definitely check it out it's 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 just something yeah i it's it it is a voice unlike really anything else that i i could you know try and compare it to so that's it um guys i love it i'm so happy we did this we'll do this again for sure
2: yes please um
0: what so where can people find you is there anything that you want you want to talk about that you have coming up and, and either one of you both of you whatever
2: do you want me to do it dan
1: yes
2: all right well uh yeah we host the podcast project exploitation so you can find us at dot com. that's projexploitatio n.com uh i've done that a lot just
1: like how it sounds yeah
2: um and we also it is it literally is yeah uh (laughs) we also have a twitter account that i sometimes tweet from whatever i'm watching or if we have something coming up uh which is just at projects pod so p-r-o-j-e-x p-o-d uh and yeah you can always follow us too individually uh you know i'm on twitter at nick j cheney but uh yeah i know dan's on twitter i forget what your handle is dan because
1: uh, I think it's clownpenis.fart.com. I That's think. right. <laughs> Sorry, no, I, I, I do have an account. I just can't remember what it is. Yeah, right now. Uh, but yeah, I am not on we're podcast.
2: there. If you just Google Project Exploitation, I, there's not a lot of competition out there for
1: that name. <laughs> so true that.
2: Uh, And I guess just because it's related, I I did a podcast before Project Exploitation uh, called Film Tank with my friend Alex, and I bring it up because of the fact that we have one episode on the lure, so... If you want to listen to that and compare notes and see if I <laughs> said anything wrong on this one or wrong on that one uh, compared to what I've said uh, vis-a-vis, uh, that would be interesting. Uh, but also we did an episode about our Sundance experience where I also okay. obviously yeah. would have talked about the lore and got into a lot of those uh, boneheaded Q&A questions because they were fresh in our minds from that year. It's literally, if you just type in, uh, well, the sh- the podcast is at filmtankshow.com. And if you just type in Sundance to like the search bar or whatever, it'll come up. But uh, those okay. are those would be two episodes that are very obviously related to what we were talking about here.
1: Awesome. Wouldn't it be funny though, if it turns out that like what you said in the lure episode on film tank was exactly the same shit well- and it turns out you're like, holy shit, my mind has been, pro- I'm a fucking replicant and everything's Before been programmed we for me to say this. it the same way yeah. every time.
2: Before we did this episode, half of me wanted to re-listen to it because I'm like, well, I don't want to repeat myself, even though it's not like everyone's listening to it. But I was like, no, if I listen to it, then I will repeat myself. So, you know, yeah. whatever. So I have no idea what I said in that episode. I know I liked <laughs> it and I liked it now so i'm sure it's going to be similar thoughts but now that i recorded this i may go back just out of curiosity because that's such a weird fascinating thing but i know one thing is if you try to redo it because we've lost an episode before and then we tried to record the episode like a a week later but we were trying to bring up the same thing because we like what we said and it was one of the worst experiences (laughs) i've ever heard (laughs)
1: Oh, I remember that episode. I remember that episode. That was the funniest episode. It was our episode on Mad Max
2: Fury Road. Mad Max. uh, Yes,
1: yes. So, yeah, the lost
2: episode was much better than the published one, unfortunately. But I just remember sitting there going, What are we doing? This is so bizarre. (laughs) Because I think at one point people are like bringing up, Well, I think you were going to mention something about this. (laughs) And it's like, Oh, was I? Because I don't know what I was going to say. Well, you said it last. Okay, but that doesn't exist Um, anymore. (laughs)
1: Well what is that Jeff Tweedy line about the greatest song was never sung you know the greatest laugh never leaves the lungs or yeah. something like that <laughs> It's always the one that got away you know Yeah but yeah, so, so anyway
2: project exploitation that's the marquee thing that me and Dan do and and thank you very much for for having us and for yeah, and for yeah. wanting both of us cuz like I said I don't do my research
0: but Dan does this is fantastic like and i'm i'm just happy i got to talk about this movie because i feel i'm more of a like this movie is new to me right so uh it, it definitely gave me a greater appreciation for it so
1: this is that's the best thing to hear
0: i had a lot of fun for the horror vision podcast uh elements of horror i'm sean and my guests were dan jeremy brooks and Nick J. Nick J. Cheney, I threw, now I threw your initial in because of your Twitter. <laughs> That's totally fine. It's it's an accurate statement. Uh, we'll have you guys back, and until then, just take care and thanks for being on.
2: dubbed Murder Virus, MV-20 sore, causing those infected to go on killing sprees. Caught in the middle, police detective Angela Miller finds her only trustworthy ally in the self-proclaimed psychic PI, Gerald Henry. As the two try to navigate the violence, they are drawn into new age guru, Abramelin Harvest's plot to heal the planet.
0: Harvest's missive? The world is sick, and humanity is the infection. The cure? Murder. From the twisted mind of Sean C. Baker, author of A Collection of Desires
2: and Shadow Play in Book One, Kim and Jesse, comes his most vicious novel yet, Murder Virus. Available where books are sold.